Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Phil's back, everybody. He's got a tall chair. Oh, wrong camera. Here I am. Yanni, now Yanni's head is in the way of the camera. No, no, no. I can I'm see here. Steve can clear, see me. That's man. all that matters. That's all that matters. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get to introductions in a minute, but first I got to, so, you know, when you see, um, airlines, airports being like voted America's favorite airport, all that's a lie. Like the best airport, um, in the world is the Ketchikan airport, Ketchikan, Alaska, small, you can get all the food you want to eat. It's got everything you need. The main thing that I liked about it was that, and Ronnie's seen this. In the confiscation display, <laughs> the yeah. TSA confiscation display, since the since 9-11, they have had, and they started doing that sort of thing, they have had a brass knuckles dagger as the centerpiece of the confiscation display. Like a genuine... Like a trench knife. Brass knuckles pointed in a dagger. So I always like to imagine the guy that was like... The guy that was bringing that on the plane. Who do you imagine him to be? I don't know, but, he, but he's like, oh, you know, one thing I should probably grab is my brass knuckles <laughs> dagger. So they had it, and then now it's gone. And I asked him, I said, why is that gone? And he says, well, now and then they go and donate all of this stuff, and they'll donate it to the Boy Scouts. And I said, there's no way that, that the Boy Scouts is going to give out or sell 
that brass knuckles dagger. So it's just missing now. Someone somewhere now holds that brass knuckles dagger and there's, it's not going to the boy scouts, but they'll take it and sell buckets of that stuff. All your leather mans. And the other day, my kid lost a bench made folder and he introduced the idea to me over the phone. He was flying with his mom and he tells me, you know, that knife that I don't use much anymore was his way of introing to me that it had been <laughs> confiscated by TSA. Anyhow, we're going through the catch can line, and Seth, we we're coming from our fish shack, and, and and as we've talked about a bunch, Seth bought the moldy, fallen-down fish shack next to our not-falling-down moldy fish shack. And my little boy, my 8-year-old, was over hanging out at Seth's place, and they gave him a slingshot, the old-school kind with the wooden handle and surgical rubber. So we're in... We're leaving Ketchikan, and he's all bent out of shape because he's worried about how he's got the slingshot in his bag. And we're conversing with the TSA guys about what exactly happened to the, where the brass knuckle dagger is. And that I'm not buying that the Boy Scouts are auctioning it off. And my kid says, listen, I have this slingshot. And the guy, he gets it out and the guy holds it and stretches it and says, you're okay. Next time, put it in your bag, but we're going to let it fly. We fly from Ketchikan to Seattle. In Seattle, like we got to go to Terminal D, and we're way far away. And they're doing some construction, so we get off the train, and normally, it seems to me normally it doesn't matter what escalator you go up, you wind up where you're trying to get to. But I'm not paying any attention. I'm talking to my kids. And we wind up at baggage claim, which means we have to go back through security. And I'm telling my kids, like, I don't understand what I did, but we got to go back to security. Two of them had already thrown out their boarding passes. So anyhow, we get, we had, we get in line and here's the backpack again. And my kid's like, man, I'm super worried about my slingshot. And I'm watching all the bags go through and that bag stops. And somehow that TSA guy is so sharp. There's no metal on this slingshot. It's a wooden handle and surgical tubing. And he snatches that bag out. And says, is there a slingshot in this bag? And I said, yeah, it belongs to my eight-year-old. They said it's they fine. Know how I felt. They said it's fine in catch can. Not fine in Seattle. Confiscated it. Mm-hmm. So now there's going to be some Boy Scout running around with my kid's slingshot and that brass knuckles dagger. <laughs> <laughs> when I find them. TSA's website addresses this. It says slingshots, carry-on bags, no. Checked bags, yes. Well, the thing I was pointing out to him when we were hashing this out is I was saying it's not like it's it's not a wrist rocket. It's an old schooler. He spent two weeks shooting that slingshot off the deck of our thing, and he was barely clearing the water line. <laughs> Slingshots by TSA categorization are the same as yo-yos. Not allowed in your carry-on, but they are allowed in checked bags. Because you're going to Garrett someone with a yo-yo? What does Garrett mean? You know, you're watching mobster movies and Peter you're in the back. The, you're, you're, the guy in the back seat kills the guy in the front seat by strangling him. I never heard it called Garrett. That's a term? Yeah. Oh, I like that. How do you not know that? I just don't. <laughs> That's going to help you in a future trivia episode, yeah. Spencer. One more thing before we do our intros. Um this is, a, this is highly unlikely. One of my absolute favorite bands of all time, the Brian Jonestown Massacre, is coming to town October 2nd. I already hold my tickets for me and my wife. Um, 
I'm thinking you guys fish. There's probably no way you guys fish, but if you fish or anything, let me know. I will take you fishing while you're in town. Uh, join today. Bye. Where do we start? Giannis, do them all up because I got to look at some stuff. Oh, geez. I'm not going to do a good job. I'm not prepped up for this episode that well. You're going to have to do the intros, big boy. Okay. Brent Reeves is here today. Yeah. You're just here because you like dogs and you're in town. It's just a happy coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His wife, Alexis, is here. How long have you guys been married? Uh, I think 12 years. She thinks year. 12 years. <laughs> I knew you was going to ask this question. Yeah. We're waiting on the lift at the hotel, and I, she came. She was getting ready, and she walked into where I was sitting. I said, now, we've been married how long? <laughs> no, you asked me what year we were married. Okay, whatever it was. <laughs> From now on, just direct all the questions uh, to my attorney. Okay. Uh, Giannis Patelis, of course, Spencer Newhart, Ronnie Bame. Many-time guest, Ronnie Bame, our, uh, living, our, our expert on dogs that are living today and what they have going on. And then we have a dire wolf and ancient dog expert. H- how do you like to classify yourself? I mean, that sounds good. Really? I'll take it. Sure. You know the first question I'm going to ask you? I don't want you to answer it yet, but I want you to know the first question I'm going to ask you. Let's have it. Is, um, and I want you to think about this, because you guys are going gonna to nitpick this question. Mm. Who, how long ago did someone have the first pet dog? And I'll define pet. Like a dog where the owner could at any given time account for where that dog was. I mean. I want you to mull that over. Do you got a good one lined up? No. Oh, really? Like it's not known. It's not well known to science. It's no, it's more in my category. No, it's not she in your category. <laughs> you're not going to tell me, right? You're not going to tell me in a way that satisfies me on what continent and in what is today's country Africa. and in what year. No. And they sent the Masenjis no. up to no. the pharaohs. They put no. big old bells on their... The on pharaohs? Their no, so someone had a dog pet, a pet dog way before that. Oh, That's the yeah. earliest one I could do. You agree, right? Uh, Don't answer, yeah. <laughs> Steve, you also didn't I, mention I her name. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Don't. Angela Perry. <laughs> Who, what are, tell me, who are you affiliated with? Uh, I'm a professor at Texas A&M okay. University, and I work in uh, commercial, cultural resource management, commercial okay. archaeology as well, helping people manage their heritage, aka archaeology. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Do you interface with um, a frequent guest we have, David Meltzer, who's, he's at a different school, but do you guys interface ever on ancient old stuff? I mean, Texas A&M and SMU what we do yeah <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> but you guys hate you guys hate each other too no neither one of us are from texas so we don't care oh so you don't you're not bought into it you're not bought i feel like i've seen your names in the same journals before, oh yeah right? we've written yeah. papers together so Dave and I. Yeah, yeah we wrote a paper about dogs coming to the americas with people oh yeah uh how long you been at texas a&m one year where were you at before then um the united kingdom uk doing what archaeology did you did you spend time at the um, did you spend time at the ancient DNA place in Oxford? Yeah, I work really closely with Grigor Larson and the ancient DNA group at so Oxford. Do you work with Beth Shapiro? Yep, she's been on the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, Beth and I, Beth's on the direwolf paper with yeah. us. We worked together to try to get DNA out of direwolves. Took a long time. We did it. Such a little click. Oh yeah, it's I got one small, you can't answer. Small club, small club. I got one you can't answer right now. <laughs> Um, and it won't detract from, cause we won't get into it too much later. Okay. We had a big argument. Um, do you remember the Spencer? 
No. We Aladdin. had a big argument about what to be more did Alaska. <laughs> Which one? Big argument. Spencer wasn't in it. Uh-huh. Were there ever dire wolves? No, he wasn't. Oh, oh yeah, no, I was go. I was the one who Oh, you know, I got a, such a bone to pick with you, dude. Oh, okay. Uh, we were there but here were there ever <laughs> dire wolves in Alaska? North of the Wall, you mean? In um, there we go. Game of Thrones. I got that one. It's good. There you go. Um, what is that? <laughs> Game of Thrones. Oh, you made a huge Game mistake. That that takes place in Alaska. Well, you know, oh. Arctic. Uh, good good question. We the real answer is we aren't sure. So there um, are a couple possible dire wolves. We have this issue though that we have dire wolves. We have gray wolves. We also have something called the Beringian wolf, mm-hmm. now extinct wolf. Um, all of them look very very similar. Um, morphologically. Their bones look very similar. So we have um, people like me, zooarchaeologists, um, go through a lot of bones trying to figure out, oh, someone called this uh, XYZ. I mean, not that long ago, I was in the Illinois State Museum where I work a lot and digging through some boxes, read about a puppy burial, digging, digging. Let me find this puppy burial they found in the 70s. Um, Dig it out. Bobcat. Really? Puppy bear really? House, Puffcat. Yeah. So you so. ought to go digging around behind you ought to go digging around behind Ronnie's house. Is, is that the one? <laughs> That's not funny. Is that the My one that kids they think they all went to farms? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a puppy mass grave back here. Was that the bobcat that they put like shell necklaces yeah, on? Yeah, had a necklace on it yeah. and everything. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Had a had a cool necklace. It had um marine and freshwater pearls on it and then it had um they were carved like two bear canines but they were like deer long bones but they've been carved to look like bear canines really strung up we found it buried um the photos from the excavation in the 70s like have it laying out in a burial with the necklace clearly so they thought like oh must be a dog must be a puppy they took so someone had taken deer long bones and carved them to look like bear canines Yes. And you were the like first one to recognize it's like fake, it was a the earliest fake diamond. I mean, it's pretty I mean, it's pretty cool. I mean, they pulled it out. Listen, what we do for zooarchaeology identifying, you know, animal remains at archaeological sites. This is not this is a, a fairly new kind of category of archaeology. Before that, you'd take your bones that you found and you send them to a biologist or zoologist or something like that or you just kind of rough it in the field. I'm an archaeologist. I don't know, it looks like it could be a dog, probably a dog. Put it in a box. Put it right mm. puppy burial on the box. <laughs> Put it away. In forty years, someone will come along. Miss yeah. Market, and tell Dig me it what it is. Um, bobcat, bobcat. Yeah. So cool. it was in a mound in Illinois. Is it possible it was a domesticated bobcat? I mean, yeah, I think so. Little pet. I don't know. You tell me. Can you domesticate a bobcat? Well, no, <laughs> you can't. You can domesticate a bobcat, a but bobcat. you can't domesticate bobcats. bobcats. You can tame. Yeah, you can tame a bobcat. Not domesticate. Yeah, what yeah. is the definition of domestication? Well, let, let's hold tight for a minute. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can, can we talk we about got too deep. dialogues <laughs> in Alaska real quick? Wasn't there a declaration made? I thought you wanted to hear the bone I have to pick with you. Uh, well, we in a second. Do. Wasn't there a declaration made in 2020 that there were direwolves found in Asia? Like, wouldn't that imply that they had to get there via Alaska? There was a declaration made. Okay, but it's not not accepted. Not yet. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, there the are media, a lot of things the, that look like a The media a jumps the gun. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're right. The media yeah, jumps yeah. the gun. Someone will come out with a paper to be to say, hey, here's a thing that, that like a thing that would be warrant exploration. Mm-hmm. And they and then they come up with a headline, 
humans in New World way before previously thought. And then you read it and you go like, eh, I mean, they got like a date off a thing that probably isn't valid. And they don't include all that in the headline. Yeah. Right? We're in the world of like sexy archaeology, right? Mm. So dogs, DNA, peopling of the Americas, all these things get like hot topic headlines. Well, that's right? why you're here, you know. Right. Exactly. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, let's, just, let's just be clear. Yeah. Dire wolves in Alaska, who knows? Uh, dire wolves don't seem to like cold weather. They were hanging out mm. a lot in um, lower latitudes, near water. They're into mm. Florida. They're into Texas. They're into Southern California. Like, like retirees. Like they're retirees. Exactly. Yeah. They're snowbirds. They're not, they don't seem to like the cold weather too much. So I find it hard to believe. You might've had some that like wandered aimlessly into somewhere north, but they're not like really hanging out there. It's not their place. Got it. Yeah. So in Crin's words, Angela Perry, you might pronounce that correct? Yeah. Is, well, Crin messed up. <laughs> It'd be an archaeologist, Crin. Mm. <laughs> Angela Perry is, in Crin's words, a archaeologist. <laughs> oh, she corrected it. Is an archaeologist and professor at Texas A&M. Her areas of expertise include environmental archaeology. Got it. Zooarchaeology, got it. Parasitology, oh. first time I ever heard that word, but mm -hmm. I got it. Mm -hmm. Paleoecology, got it. Hunter gatherers, domestication, adaptation, and canids. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, Ronnie Bame hosts the Hunting Dog Podcast. Brent Reeves hosts This Country Life on the Meat Eater Network and often hunts with dogs. Uh, we're going to come back to all that in a minute. Um, Another invitation. I own a dog too. Re yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> Yanni owns a dog. I'm an aspiring dog owner. Really? Mm -hmm. Um, this is a, a note out, and I'm going to hit you up on Instagram too. The butcher of Hoy Lake, a golfer. That so Barons. Here's a headline from Barons. The butcher of Hoy Lake stays patient as he hunts British Open crown. So there's a there's a golfer, real good at golfing. Um. I see that he, uh, in all of his interviews about golfing, he always talks about hunting. I want to have, so I, I'd like to have you come on the podcast because I feel that golf is the antithesis of hunting. <laughs> like you can't get, if I looked at a person golfing, a person um, uh, sitting on a chair reading, in a person hunting, and I had to rate them like who's closest to hunting, I would pick the person on the chair because maybe they're reading about hunting. It's like, I would love to have Brian Harmon on. Guy, uh, so there's the invite. Please come on the show. We're gonna, um, I'm gonna, we're gonna dog on you about playing golf, and you can defend <laughs> yourself. Just killed the biggest deer of his life two years ago. Only hunts mature bucks, butchers his own deer. Nice. And won a golfing contest. Um, Real big golfing yeah, contest, too. Like a big golfing tournament. Big, big. There are four majors, Steve. He won the wrong one because this is the only one held outside of the United States. Thus, the European media uh, didn't take a liking to his uh, very American hunting culture. Oh. That's yeah, how but, this whole, yeah, like, they, all kind of came yeah, to Yeah, but me. they're, like, the, you know, their king, uh, their king guys used to go hunting. For sure. The current ones, mm -hmm. the one I think the one that ab the one that like the one that absconded to America. The I think king he guys. Used, yeah, he used to hunt, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think the one that stayed put used to do it. Yeah, and if you'd go to Brian's Instagram, you wouldn't even know he was a golfer. He looks like a plain old hunter. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. God, please come on the show. 
You think he'll come on the show, Corinne? Yep. You gonna reach out to him? You're gonna reach out to him. He <laughs> I can't wait to have him on the show. Um, what else is in here that's interesting? That's not interesting. <laughs> not that it's not interesting. It's super. It's all interesting, Corinne. It's just I'm just trying to be cognizant of time. Um. And to be honest with you, I didn't look at everything that was interesting in the right <laughs> frame of reference. Oh, why did you scratch out why astrology is stupid? <laughs> because I didn't think that... That was the most interesting thing. I didn't think that the explanation was like... But go no, ahead. it's a great explanation. Go ahead, hit it. So, Guy writes in, he knows that I hate astrology. Um, and I think I've talked about making my own 12 signs. Have I told you about that? Like, instead of looking up your sign, <clears throat> I'll make up 12 that'd be like, your dad was a drunk and beat you. <laughs> so you look it up and you'd be like, you'll have, um, you'll have trust issues. You'll have trust issues today. Like you're extraordinarily wealthy, but you inherited all the money and you could look it up and be like, be an easy day today, but you might feel existential crises. And then it'd be a much more accurate way to, to find out what's going to happen today than it would be to look at astrology but this guy was saying this guy wrote in why it's all wrong everyone thinks there's something other than they are and he explains the earth currently revolves around the sun and spins on its axis with a 23.5 degree tilt that in conjunction with earth's rotation around the sun gives us the seasons got it this tilt changes wobbles in a formal process called precession this also affects climate this matters because thousands of years ago, when astrological signs were defined, the night sky was positionally different than it is now. So when someone says they are Aquarius or Virgo or whatever, they are actually off by a month in that night sky they are referring to via zodiac, via the zodiac sign. So it's not even accurate anyway. So you follow me? So I always I run do. around liking to tell people that I'm a Aquarius, I believe, mm -hmm. but I'm not. That was interesting. And you made up 12 of those? <laughs> no, I only, I'm just we're still working on the concept. Okay. Because I got to find 12 that capture everybody. <laughs> and then you'll be able to look every morning and I'll tell you a little bit about how the day is going to go. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can help me with that on it. I'm on it. Yeah. Because you can help me with the one about criminals. At your, yeah. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> like you're a criminal. And then we can look up and it'll give you some ideas. Born under the sign of handcuffs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The, oh, we got to do signs too. Yeah, yeah the, like the handcuff sign. Yeah, the bar shadows from money, the window. A money sign. <laughs> the bar shadows from the window are your first clue that you're a criminal. Uh, all right, getting on now, Corinne. When do you imagine that we we plug Ronnie's project? Um, I was gonna say a little bit later on. Okay, so we're gonna dig right in. Can we save all that stuff though? Yeah. Normally, this would all happen behind the scenes, but Phil's so cranky about his video that, that we can't right. be behind the scenes anymore. Nope. Sausage is getting made. We're seeing it. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's dig in now. Right, have you thought about what my question? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> when, okay. And this, th that's a question that's going to require you to, mm -hmm. is a question that's going to require you to define a bunch of points. Dig deep. Mm -hmm. uh, we Lately, when I say lately, mm -hmm. 
I mean, in recent years, yeah, you see headline after headline after headline um, as dogs become more popular and more treat people treat dogs more like people. People are infatuated with dogs. You see more and more headlines sort of speculating on when mm-hmm. the what is the genesis of dog ownership? Yeah. What is the genesis of the pet dog? Who first domesticated the dog? When did they domesticate the dog? How was the dog domesticated? Yeah. So I'm trying to put it in a clean question that would let you explore some of these definitions to say, who had the first dog? When and where? <laughs> Generous of you. Yeah. Set those questions up for us. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, good questions. I think that where we're at in... People who are into ancient dogs is probably that we are we're moving away from just like Neanderthals. You probably had like Metten and and Dave talking about this when they were on before. Are we previously thought like oh Neanderthals are these like kind of brutish people who can't figure anything out? More no, learning that dude. they're doing all of these yeah. amazing things. And I think around dogs, we've always had this idea that probably it's only recently that we've been doing like training and breeding and very specific stuff. And up until this point, dogs have just been kind of wandering in their own, left to their own devices. That's probably not the case. So some of the work we're starting to do now is trying to figure out the genetic lineages of working dogs. You know, um, when do people really start breeding dogs to be Working dogs, birding dogs, or hunting dogs, or sled dogs, or any of these kinds of things. Um, Breeding meaning I'm going to take this one, which is great, yeah. and I'm going to put it with this one, which is great, yeah, and hopefully continue this this yeah uh, continue this like set of behaviors or whatever. Right. So breeding's tricky, right? Because it not only means you have to put things together, but you have to keep things apart, mm-hmm. right? So you have some dogs that you're like, nope, don't want them. Not those aren't the good ones. We don't want them breeding with the ones who are good at this. Um, so it takes some forethought, takes some planning, takes some ways to keep them apart from each other, right? So we did a paper a couple years ago now on some rock art we found in Saudi Arabia um, showing people hunting with dogs at several sites. These dogs had leashes on them, very clearly leash, leashed dogs. Some of them were a couple dogs, some of them like huge groups of dogs. Some of the dogs were leashed. Some of the dogs weren't leashed. And this is on rock art. It's rock art, right. And so what's interesting as well, if you're interested in hunting and how people are using dogs, is that these are two different locations as well. So you have one site that's kind of an oasis area where you clearly are going to have animals that are coming up to to drink and eat, and they're going to be trying to ambush prey at a watering hole. And then you have another location where you also have dog hunting rock art that's this kind of narrow escarpment valley where you're clearly going to be using dogs to like chase hunt animals into a location where then you're going to kill them. And the depictions of how they're using dogs in these two locations are very different. Your, the, your hand gesture for kill. Spear. Very violent. <laughs> she was, she stabbed with, spear. she stabbed <laughs> with both hands at once. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we're doing, right? So she's the first yeah. uh, criminal astrological <laughs> sign. Right so it, what's interesting about that rocker is that, yeah, we have leashes. So they're clearly controlling dogs. But, but what you're going to get to when the rock art was made. Yes. Okay, cool, cool. So rock art, hard to date, but 
pre-Neolithic, so before the arrival of agriculture, so probably nine to 10,000 years ago, nine to 8,000 years ago. Somewhere. There were leashed dogs. Leashed dogs, leashed dogs. And what's interesting about this that we notice is that the they're depicting in some places tons of like 20, 30, 40 dogs, like groups of dogs with very specific patterning and okay. very specific like morphotypes of the dogs. So it almost appears as if they're depicting individual dogs that are like known to them. You know, Got they're it. not just drawing dog, dog, dog. That, oh, this one has spots here. This one has a pattern on its chest here. Hmm. This one has this. So you start to get this impression that very, very early on, people are thinking of dogs as like individuals. Yep. Um, and that they're thinking of dogs as members of the group, members of the hunting party. And that they're, it's not this idea of like, just take the dogs, we're blindly going out for a hunt. Whatever happens, happens, right? That there's planning involved that there's some kind of method involved and that the dogs are individuals known to them and are in many ways probably equal members of the hunting group. You're like, reading a lot into this. It was my PhD, so okay. maybe I am reading a lot into it. But, I mean, they're depicting dogs very specifically, right, in some, yeah. some interesting way. So I would say probably by that time there's some effort to, you know, control dogs, train dogs, breed dogs, do some some kind of yep. like, and and does that lead to a pet? Is that a pet? No. Dogs are interesting because they're kind of like a Swiss army knife of, of tools, right? So my interest in dogs is dogs as technology, right? They're the first biotechnology. If we think about all the things that we do with animals these days in terms of technology, uh, dogs are where all of that started. Before dogs, we did everything ourselves. We had to figure out how to hunt. We had to figure out how to track things. We had to figure out how to do all this ourselves. Dogs are the first time that we went, oh, wait a minute. Like something else can do this for us. Oh, yeah. That's care, better, that's care, better care than, than and, we yeah. are, right? Right. So you can use a dog to hunt. You can use a dog to pull a sled. But you can also use a dog as a bed warmer. You can also use a dog as emergency food, fur source, um, alarm system, sanitation around your campsite. The dog does a lot of things. Dog is technology, right? Are you hip to the eye, um, to the theory, I'm sure you've heard it, that dogs perhaps self-domesticated, self mm. meaning here you have these, these roving bands of hunters or these migratory bands of hunters, and they leave a lot of waste, mm -hmm. gut piles, yep. carcasses, and... Dogs are just kind of glued to them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And over time, like that, as a possible explanation for how it came to be, and it wasn't bad to have them around. Yeah. They would alert the, the you know, you to the presence of things, and maybe that helps explain how it came to be that these two species yeah. develop some sort of symbiosis. I mean, I think this is probably the, the kind of going theory at the moment. It used to be probably we thought – oh, taking cute wolf pups or something like that was probably how it happened. But this is unlikely. It's hard for us to to think through the, the process of domestication with dogs. They're the first domesticated anything, first domesticated animal, plant, anything. First concept of domestication is dogs. So prior to dog domestication, we have no concept of what kind of a domestic sphere plant or animal would look like, right? So the idea that people intentionally domesticate a dog without any concept of what domestication would mean is unlikely. And I think... Uh, that's 
That's a that's a cool point. I never thought about that. Like, how no, do you, no, how, they had no plants yet. No. Not, not so yeah, they weren't like, I'm going to do with this raccoon like, like we did with yeah, our dog. Yeah, but, it, but, it, but it's a domino effect after yeah. that, right? Yeah, after the sure. first thing's domesticated, then they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> Look at all these things out here. I can yeah, ride a horse. Yeah. <laughs> Horses, cows, goats, sheep, donkey. I mean, then they just go for it, right? Then after that, it's just a slew of animals that are domesticated one after the other, mostly livestock animals. Um, but also domesticating a dangerous carnivore. Like that, can't, that's not intentional, right? Why are you going to go out? That had to take some time. I mean, why are you going to go out and be like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to domesticate. I don't know what domestication is, but I'm going <laughs> to, but this is what we're going to do. And Let's you know what, do you know where we're starting? We're not starting with the juicy horses. We are starting with the wolf. This is where, you know, our dangerous predator competition. That, uh, yeah. What you're saying is more likely. Is it a wolf? Yeah, it is. It's okay. a, it's a wolf. We, you know, you said you had Beth on the show before. We cannot find, have not found the wolf population from which it comes. Not, It's not our gray wolves. It's a gray wolf ancestor. But whatever lineage dogs come from, that gray wolf ancestor is most likely not with us anymore, extinct. Um, but very closely related to to our modern gray wolves. They are wolves, though. Well, how, okay, how many, how many, um... I was going to say how many canines are, do we have globally, but that's not very helpful because then you get into like kit foxes and, mm. right? How many, if you look, so there's African wild dog, right? Yeah. And you have, what's that one in, in Australia? A dingo, a dingo. Bye -bye. Yeah. But those are domesticated, right? They like are domesticated. Those, those yeah. aren't wild. Okay. So, but, yeah. that, that, but they can live without people. Yeah. Dingoes. Yeah. So dingoes, so dingoes are domesticated dogs that arrive with the first peoples in Australia and then Oh, okay. So off, they right? arrive they, with people. Right. Okay. They arrive and then they're like, we're out of here. They head off to the outback or wherever in Australia. So they are feral dogs in many ways, but this is a debate. But they're they're a, they're a wolf. Yeah, I mean or, I mean sorry, they they okay, they're originally from a wolf. Right. Yeah. Right. Weirdly, yeah. dingoes are classified as like vulnerable or threatened, yeah. which strikes me as strange. It's an interesting debate in Australia right now about dingoes that, you know, some people would like to classify them as a pest species. They're just a dog that's gone feral. They're feral dogs. They're destroying everything. But others say like, maybe they are a dog, a domesticated dog, but they've been in many ways rewilded. They've been alone for thousands and thousands of years and they, they effectively act as a wild animal. Yeah, because the 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 ancestral Australians arrived there 40,000 years ago. Right. They would have not arrived 40,000 years ago. They would have been there, I think, 5,000 years ago. Oh, the ago. dog. Yeah, oh, the dog. Oh, dogs so that arrived was later wave, later waves A later of wave of people. Yeah. So, but, you know, 5,000 years kind of hanging out on their own. Also, the New Guinea singing dog, very closely related to dingoes in, in New Guinea. Totally, totally isolated, domesticated dog, but has been isolated alone for thousands and thousands of years. Functions as a wild animal. Is a domesticated dog. Functions as a wild animal. Um, when you did anyone I'm trying to go back real deep here for a minute and then I'm going to jump way into the future when you in, in the in the during the African diaspora hmm. was anybody packing dogs no 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 we don't have so the paper that I wrote with Dave yeah. Meltzer um, proposed that domestication of dogs probably happened in Siberia around 23,000 years ago. Um, 
what we're always missing when I'm like laying in bed at night as an archaeologist thinking about dogs, what I think about is like, why? Right. We're hanging out with wolves for tens of thousands of years on the landscape, hunting alongside them. Predators just like us, daylight hunters who form packs to take down animals larger than ourselves. Very, very similar. You're calling us daylight hunters. I mean, you could be a nighttime hunter if you want. No, no, but that's what. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I just got. I didn't know if you're talking about dog. You're talking about so so humans being like daylight pack hunters, right? I, very I similar to wolves, yeah, right? I got you. We I have got a you. similar social structure. We take care of each other's young. We, we're very similar to wolves in lots of ways, and we would have seen and known wolves on the landscape for tens of thousands of years prior to domestication. So the question is, why now? Yeah. What 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 drives domestication to occur? Um, so going back to your idea of was it an accident that they domesticate themselves around that time in lots of parts of the world? We had pretty um, crap climate stuff happening, right? The LGN, the last glacial maximum, not a nice time to hang out in, in a lot of parts of Eurasia. Um, so we have populations of hunter-gatherers who are essentially kind of isolated in Siberia. So they kind of get stuck there. There's a refugia of some decent um, kind of climate and, and locations up there. But moving between that and the rest of, of Eurasia would have been kind of nasty times. So they kind of isolate up there. We don't know how long they've been up there for. Thousands of years, though. Two to 9,000 years, they're hanging up. Can I, up can I point out that that I'm quite envious of those people? Because they, <laughs> got, they, they got to hunt the woolly rhinoceros. Right, exactly. So they're up there. With, which is just, if you're going to do something yeah. cool, that's about the epitome of coolness. So they're up there yeah. with, with these populations of animals who are also up there in this kind of refugium, but also wolves. Wolves are kind of isolated up there with them as well. So they become um, less mobile in this kind of smaller area than they're used to. And something like that has to be the driver. There has to be some reason that, that dogs become domesticated. And probably, as you were saying, they're, they're hunting, they're leaving scraps around. And some group of wolves somewhere decided, you know what, today's the day. I'm not going to risk everything and go out and hunt this deer or woolly rhino or something like that on my own. Why would I do that when it's much easier to well, eat they off have, they the would scraps, have been, right? They would have been competitors too, wouldn't they? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's much Until easier. Until one of them scavenged off the other and figured it out. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, people in Alaska right now, lots of parts of the world, Russia, deal with this all the time, right? So there are dangerous predators who hang out. Bears are around lots of village sites. People don't run them off anymore. They just learn to live alongside. They're going through the trash. They're not really bothering anyone. They're just doing their thing. Humans, like, as long as they don't bother us, we won't bother them. This kind of, like, symbiotic relationship of they eat our trash and don't bother us, that's fine. We could see that happening with wolves where, you know, you butcher some kind of mammoth or something like that. You take what you want. You go back to your campsite. You don't really care if the wolves are scavenging off the leftovers as long as they don't bother you and they're kind of at an arm's distance. Why bother them, right? And so what ends up happening is that, you know, wolves have have culture. Wolves learn to hunt from their parents and other pack members. And when you have generations of wolves that have no longer, no longer hunt, right, they're scavengers now, then what do they teach their young to be scavengers? And then their young are scavengers. And, and then eventually you have generations of wolves who have never hunted. They only know scavenging. So going back to a hunting lifestyle is not as easy for them. And they only know a scavenging lifestyle. And eventually you kind of narrow that population down to this population of wolves that are 
scavengers who are comfortable living alongside humans. And then that's just like ripe for becoming a dog. How long would something like that take? I mean, it would only take a few generations, right? To get wolves that have never hunted before. Yeah, no, yeah that's right? a good point. Um, well, how did it backfill? See, I thought the answer was going to be different because you're talking about these, these pre-agriculture mm-hmm. cave art or rock art. Yeah. Um, is it, is it petroglyph? What the hell? Which is which? Petro and Picto. Which yeah. one was Pictographs it? or petroglyphs? Pictographs are. That's a chiseling noise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is petroglyphs. Rock. Right. You can call them petroglyphs. Rock so it backfilled. It went in reverse. Meaning humans were in Saudi Arabia mm. long before they were in Siberia. And if the technology, mm-hmm. um, did I just say, yeah, humans were in Saudi yeah. Arabia long before they were in Siberia. So if the technology emerged in Siberia, it mm-hmm. somehow also. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it like it, it transferred. Yeah. I mean, not just the direction that people were, that some people were flowing. It would have dispersed. So yeah. if we're right about Siberia, you have dogs essentially being domesticated there on their own accord. Um, And then once the LGM, this kind of nasty climatic thing, simmers down and we get into the Holocene, then people disperse. So the ancestors of Native Americans, they make their way across the Beringian land bridge into the Americas, but also that population disperses back down into the rest of Eurasia and Arabia and everywhere else across the world. When when those first Americans... Whenever I talk about Bringy, I always like to point this out, is that people, no one, and maybe you'll disagree, no one in Siberia woke up one day and said, Fred, let's go to America. Mm. Okay. They hadn't been there. They didn't know what was there. And I feel that the, 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 generations of generations of humans would have lived and died uh, in what is now the Bering Sea. Mm. Yep. Right. You were not, you were moving along and you know, someday you go like, well, let's go check the next Valley. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's pretty sweet. All the stuff there has like no idea what we are. And you can just kind of walk up and kill it. And the next day you're like, let's go over to the next Valley. No concept of that. You're heading anywhere. And it was a huge landmass. Huge. 600 so, miles wide, yeah, which is the like same width as Montana. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it'd be that yeah. you would have people who would born, mm-hmm. you would have had people born and died yep. on this chunk of ground that's underwater now yes. in, in the shallow sea. Yes. So if you have a domestication event in Siberia, by the time people get to what is now Alaska, yep. are their dogs still... Are 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 their dogs still um, making love to the new wolves they're finding in Alaska? Like, how are you yeah. not constantly updating what the hell a dog is by every you are every like genotype of every genotype of this almost like pan global wolf? You are. Okay. So we like to say domestication is a process, not an event. Yeah. Because it. domestication also starts, stops, has dead ends. Maybe started up in other places and then petered out. No, it's not working. Taming these wolves, not 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 working. 
out for us. And then that that kind of lineage of tamed wolves, semi-possibly domesticated dogs kind of, you know, peters off. These are the ones that worked, right? So when you, let's, let's say you get to the point where, well, just, there's two, so there, there's two things I'd like you to get into to help try to explain. Eventually you have across North. So, so you have the first Americans come in mm. and they very quickly just explode southward. And then later you have this wave of po- people who are possibly more Japanese Aleutian and they exploited like marine resources and had composite toolkits for harvesting whales and shit. <laughs> and they come across the north of Alaska, very different, mm-hmm. like very different people. Yeah. Had dogs. Yeah. And then, so you get to where uh, Stephenson in the, in the early 1900s is, is going in like Coronation Gulf and he's finding people with dogs yeah. who have had not had interactions with Europeans. A century earlier, you have uh, Lewis and Clark come onto the Great Plains and they're finding nomadic bison hunters mm-hmm. with huge packs of dogs, yep. which they're using, eating. These things look nothing alike. Yep. Uh, how is all that happening? I mean, because they're not buying dogs from they're not buying dogs from Europe. No, where dogs go, people go. So anywhere people went in America's dogs are going right and. Eventually, just like humans, these groups of dogs breed only with each other. And eventually you get independent lineages of dogs that are very different. You know, a dog that you're using as a water dog ends up looking very different than a dog you're using to hunt bison and looks very different than a dog that you're using to hunt white-tailed deer and boar and looks very different from a dog that's a sled dog that's pulling you across the Canadian Arctic. Um, and so these things can happen fairly rapidly you're just saying like you know you want a dog that is good at being in the water and has a better coat and blah blah blah. so you just just make it just kick out the ones you don't want out of out of that that line and you know you get one that has a really good coat that you like you breed that one um and eventually you know you get a dog that does what you want it to do yeah just breeding for characteristics right characteristics and, and traits right yeah so you know up north, they need dogs that are um, pulling sleds and have a certain physiology and have certain types of foot pads that are good for pulling and certain types of um, oxygen intake at higher altitudes. And, and that's what they breed for. Um, and like the first, I mean, the first population of, of dogs, that, that initial population of wolves, if they kind of self-domesticated, right, that population naturally gets cold down, right? Say one of those wolves decides like, you know what, I'm going to wander into that village today and I'm going to take a little snap at a toddler. That wolf is not in that population for very long, right? Humans make sure like, nope, cold. All right, that guy and his bad attitude are gone, no longer in that population. Um, And it's the same thing for dogs across the early Americas. You know, this dog sucks. It doesn't hunt. It's not doing what we want. Done. Out Food. Of, out, of the, out, of, out of the population. Well, right. It has nice fur, though. Yeah. Could you use that, right? So, so you have these dogs being cold and cold and cold and cold. Um, we're working on a paper now. You're saying cold. 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 Yeah, cold. Cold. C-U-L-L-D. 
Cold. Speaking of which, you know, Danny, we were just up at the fish shack, and Danny was telling me he saw where someone was selling firewood in Alaska. I can't remember what part of where, where he was, but someone was selling firewood and kindling. But they just cut to it, and it's spelled K-I-N-L-I-N. Kindling. <laughs> which is what everybody says, a kindling. They're just like, I'm like, you know what? I'm not getting the D involved anymore. The D's out. Kindling. It's kindling. That's South Alaska. <laughs> or, or the G. Yeah. He says it's K-I-N-L-I-N. He knew exactly what they were kindling. talking about. Saved on paint on the sign. Uh, anyways, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, cold. 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 Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean, they, I, I honestly think somebody should explain cold because I bet you a lot of people don't really know. Go ahead. Are you volunteering? Well, tell us. You're the archaeologist, but I know more about <laughs> culling probably. It's the process of taking something that's not desirable and killing it as it, and usually in its infant stage. Yeah. You don't usually wait till they're, you find out if they're two years old and they're practical to use. That process has been done with domestic dogs for years because you could see if you're looking for a standard size or a standard coat and you'll see puppy differences and be like, oh, wow, that one's tiny. Yep. You know, that way it just... Because it's a resource sink. It, it, right. It's yeah. like, we, we're only going to have to feed eight of them if everything works out right. And that one that's really big, that reminds me of the dog that the neighbor had from 20 years ago, the one that was killing things. Big one's out. Mm -hmm. So they try to keep it to a standard, basically. Yeah. And I'm sure they did that back in the day. You know, right. they yeah. they could tell. And the, the neat thing about those people are they would have kept those dogs around to observe them as they're growing up. Because dogs are like kids, but they grow up in 12 months, kind of. So you might see that behavior of a really aggressive one at six months, and they would probably still call it there because they still want the milder temperament dog. You know, they, so the, yeah, the, but I just didn't, I, I know you were saying that, and I wanted people to like, yeah. oh, we're talking about, you yeah, know, selective. Like, it, it wants to be like a euphemism. <laughs> this isn't selective breeding, this is selective killing. Real slow. <laughs> so. Yeah. Hey man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now you use Rocket Money and does all of that for me. I'll tell you, this, this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch. And they lure you in with a one-month trial. And you're like, oh, you know, I'll do the one-month trial. Then I'll come back and cancel. Then I can watch this whole thing. And then, like, you don't. You forget about it. And then, and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, 
take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. You know, uh, in Francis Parkman's The Oregon Trail, so there's a historian named Francis Parkman and he wrote one of the he wrote what would become one of the early definitive histories of the French and Indian war. Mm. Um, he had, you know, what was the disease that used to send everybody out West? The doctors would say like, go to an arid climate, go to an arid climate, TB, oh, to, yeah, tuberculosis, yeah. Yeah. Consumption. Lungs, yeah. something like that. So he went out in, um, I think it was in 1834, Francis Parkman went out onto the great plains and then later wrote a book called the Oregon trail. Mm. Uh, they think that he was, he was probably, so he was, he spent a bunch of time with the Oglala Sioux, was probably in Crazy Horse's camp when Crazy Horse was 13 years old. He one day goes into, um, I think he goes into a trading post in Laramie, what's now Laramie, Wyoming. I think he was in Laramie. And he's invited to dinner in a Sioux family's, so an Oglala Sioux family's teepee. He's invited to dinner. All of their puppies are in the teepee. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yep. you've hit a level of familiarity and care where the 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 female dog is nursing her puppies inside. Yeah, which, like the first house dog. Yeah, which like <laughs> yeah. so it paints a picture, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you have it's like 
it's 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 not a huge space, yep. but you're giving that space this litter of puppies, which demonstrates this level of familiarity and care. But here's Francis Parkman. He's a he's a guest. A woman goes over, sorts through that little collection of puppies that is inside the teepee, thumps one in the head and cooks it for him. So it's like this real, you know what I mean? It's just it's it's like this real collision of two. It's this collision of two attitudes about dogs that's really interesting, right? Oh, yeah. they're inside, right? And we're gonna take care of them and make sure right. that whatever nothing kills all the puppies. But but we're gonna eat a if couple. someone comes yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, dog is good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. So like these, you know, you get these glimpses into these very complicated, these these like complicated contradictory relationships. Yeah, I mean, some of the the sites that I was working on for my um, when I was writing my dissertation were super interesting because you have um, clearly hunting camps, hunter gather um, sites where you have elaborate burials of dogs, which must be hunting dogs. They're burying them with hunting implements and mm. um, red deer antlers and very elaborate points and things like that and with covered with red ochre and oh, really? in these like very elaborate burials. It looked just like a human burial. But then next door, you got a bunch of butcher dogs that they've clearly been eating in the trash pile, right? So there, you clearly have these like in the same camp, same camp, same camp. So you have dogs that are, you know, and and I we probably have that a version of that. We're not butchering them and throwing them in a trash pile, but we have versions of this, right? Where we have, you know, if you're a hunter and you have hunting dogs and you got that like prized hunting dogs, and then you got the kind of you know someone was telling me in a bar yesterday at Ted's. We had this German short hair pointer, like great hopes for it. Scared, scared of guns. Now it's a couch potato, right? Yep. It's not. But then they have another dog that's just like an amazing hunting dog. Um, so, you know, you get this, these levels also of, you know, where that dog falls in the pack. And we think, you know, as an archaeologist, I, I think about humans as another animal on the landscape. We're just another animal on the landscape. And, uh, a dog is our greatest technology if you're a hunter-gatherer and you're using dogs for hunting. And um, in many ways, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you know, 10,000 years ago, a dog is much more valuable to you than another human hunter, right? So when I was hunting <coughs> boar in Japan, you know, we would enter these dense, dense forests. No way we're going to track a boar, but dogs were like... Oh, you're talking about you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so tell me about this now. So part of my PhD where I was in Japan working with hunters and hunters in Japan trying to see how they use their dogs to hunt uh -huh. boar there um, in some of these really, really dense forests. You know, you can't see two feet in front of you because the forests are so dense. And the rise of hunting dogs in our kind of archaeological past is, is most likely tied to the beginning of the Holocene period, somewhere between 10 and 12,000 years ago, when we kind of move out of this time of having more open forests and polar tundras and the deciduous forests start coming into the northern latitudes and forests start getting really, really dense. And the animals move from these huge megafauna, um, you know, mammoth and mastodons that we see out on an open plain to like super fast white-tailed deer and boar who are moving through a dark, dense forest, right? Got it. We're humans. We're not usually tracking a white-tailed deer through a dark, dense forest. Can I throw uh, something into that? 
You tell me. I think that you're also starting to see that that they've had that you, you're people are living and encountering animals that have had more experience with humans. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, I brought this up before, but there was a time when there was the first person. I don't know who he was. I'd love to meet him. There was the first person that ever saw a rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. And that person had lived <laughs> hundreds of generations in the absence of yep. venomous snakes. Yep. Or there was the first man, there was the, the first person that ever walked up to a mastodon. Mm. Yeah. And the mastodon maybe just stood there. Yeah. His island doesn't seem that big. Yeah. What's it doing? <laughs> Right, and then after a while, you get where stuff has kind of a <laughs> yeah. has a different attitude, and you might be looking for new ways of dealing with these new attitudes. Yeah, but we're we're meaning where they catch a smell on the wind and they're gone. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but we're also dealing with that, right? So, generations before you were Macedon hunters on open plains. Every technology you built was for that. Everything you've taught generations after you is for how you go hunt a Macedon on an open plain. Now you have dense forests coming in mm-hmm. quickly. Prey species are changing. They're becoming these kind of meso prey species, smaller, medium-sized prey species. They're very quick and moving through a, a dense forest. That takes a different type of hunting, yep. different types of tools, different types of technology. Um, dogs are really good at that. Um, I, I had no idea they hunted boars with dogs in Japan. Yeah. So what what happened when you went? How did it go? Um. I mean, the dogs, the dogs do most of it, right? Yeah. I mean, so what's interesting, I love debates about, um, about hunting with dogs, modern hunting with dogs. Because when I talk to hunters who don't use dogs, not for like birding or something like that, but hunting deer or boar or something like that, they say there's no sport to it. Oh, yeah, hunting yeah, with dogs whatever. is cheating, right? <laughs> it's too easy. It's too easy. If you're hunter-gatherer 10,000 years ago, it's exactly what you want. You want it to be, it's not a sport, it's subsistence hunting, you know? But even I'll, I mean, this is a subject for a different thing, but I would love to, <laughs> I would love to debate with one of these people, uh, how it's not easy. Right. Because the thing I always like to bring out to people is if you could measure hunting knowledge in like bits, the way you might measure information in your, on your, in your computer or in a drive to successfully use dogs, meaning selecting, breeding, caring for, training. Someone who can effectively use a dog to get a big game animal holds more bits of, holds vastly more bits of information in their head than is required to shoot a deer coming into an ag field. It's just like, like you might find one to be more fun or less fun, but don't get into me this Mm -hmm. idea that it's easier or cheating to to pull that off. Yeah, yeah. Because that's not easy to pull off. Right. That takes lifetimes of dedication. You might like you might have other problems with it, but the easy thing, come on. So I it's de- just not true. I debate this a lot with a colleague of mine, Jeremy Coster. He's a professor at um, Cincinnati, and he works with um, indigenous mosquito and Mayungna people hunting in Nicaragua. Um, and tell they, me that name again. Jeremy Coster. No, no, no the the uh, mosquito and Mayungna people. Okay. So um, in Nicaragua, where they're they're horticulturalists, but they still th- primary meat is coming from subsistence hunting in these like neotropical forests, pretty, pretty dense kind of tropical forests. Um, and so we debate a lot about, they use hunting dogs there. Um, their dogs are not 
really trained. It's They come out, one, they might get killed by a jaguar. Mm-hmm. Some ways that's good for you because it's killing your dog is not killing you. So that's all right. Um, but a lot of them get lost to jaguars or snake bites. Um, a lot of them are just clearly not up for it. But then you get some small population of dogs who are really good at it and then teach other dogs. Um, but there, he he does a lot of calculations of tracking um, cost-benefit analyses of using dogs and return rates um, using dogs versus not using dogs. The issue there is he's got a dense forest and he's got probably 20 or 30 animals in that forest that that dog could go after. And you don't know when your dog goes off and it's barking and it's gone if it's going after a forest rat or a brocket deer. Mm-hmm. And you have to debate whether the time lost in tracking down your dog for four hours, if it caught a rat, yeah. is worth it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or does it have a deer? And you don't know, right? So you can lose a lot of time in an environment like that. If you're a hunter-gatherer in a forest in, you know, northern U.S. or Germany or the U.K., your your idea of what your dog is going after is is a much smaller breadth of prey species, right? Yeah. And so you could have 30 things of which 25 you don't care about, or you could have a forest in which if your dog's going after something, it's probably something you want to kill and eat. Right. Yanni's got it narrowed down to one thing. <laughs> Ideal, T- tell ideally. Us, Yanni. <laughs> well, I'm trying to train him just to chase mountain lions and bobcats. Oh, oh, two and rank raccoons. Oh, three things. Never mind. He's yeah. got to narrow down three things. <laughs> <laughs> but there has been a lot of narrowing down, you know, a lot of teaching him what not to chase. Right. And how much time does that take? kind of effort does it take uh, we're, we're not done <laughs> so, we're, we're three years in roughly yeah uh, lots of time this is the debate of like as an ancient hunter gatherer spending three years training a dog probably not it's probably a a game of nope 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 oh this one's all right all right he gets the red ochre he gets the red ochre and the spear point the rest of them are general talent right. chicken <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, this is the this is the debate we have. Do we breed the good one with another good one from the village next door, produce some good pups, then you go from there. That litter produces eight pups. Of those eight pups, six of them duds. Two of them, all right. I need to I, I wanna just really quickly get back to this Japanese thing. How many okay. ba- how many boars did you guys get? We got well, we went out for weeks. So oh. um Oh, so you're really putting some time into it. Yeah, yeah. We're tracking. We had GPS collars on the dogs trying to track like where they went, how long it took them. They have chase dogs and catch dogs? The chase dogs were the catch dogs there. So they ch- they track it and hold it down. Yeah, track and hold. They have the full vests and everything, though. Oh. Those boar aren't messing around. Yeah. So then they come in and kill it with a knife. Yeah, I mean, so basically this is what we did. We un- We get to the edge of the forest, right? super dense and i'm thinking how we look for the the tree that has you know the rubbing on it like okay they're they're somewhere dog sniffs the tree looks at us all right we'll go he's got the scent there they go tracking moment gps callers where where are they going um you can hear them they're they're barking to each other 
rut, 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 tracking each other where they're going. You can you can hear them going up the mountain. You can kind of hear where where the barks are coming, and you can hear when they get the scent that they're close because then their barking really, you know, is increasing. Um, and then you can tell when they got them. You know, they're doing that. that burr, 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 go go, and then you're just like, all right. Here's where the humans step in, and we do the real hard work, right? We so we track them down and then kill them. Yeah. Right, but this is so. Did you take a real liking to that, or was it just work for you? I mean, it's it's fun, right? Okay. It's it's interesting to see the process. I'm an archaeologist. I see the dead animals on the ground, right? I need to know how how does this work? Yeah. Um, in reality, how you know what are I I, I try to think through how what are the places that things could go wrong where does the path split in a hunt where a choice could go this way or this way you know a lot of people in archaeology talk about um hunter choice and hunter prey choice and what we decide to do what we decide not to do but when i've been hunting with dogs we're not the ones who decide what animal you go after we're the ones who decide if you kill it or not but we're not the ones deciding on animal you go after so when we talk about you know humans in the past ten thousand years ago always killed males or females or ones this size or ones over here a lot of that if you're using a dog to hunt was decided by the dog we decided whether you kill it or not yeah but prey choice is largely decided by what animal the dog goes after um and so you know we they're regularly going after females with young regularly going after males that are rutting or on their own sick old injured you know these are the animals that that dogs are going after over and over and over. Yeah, that's a good point. You might fine tune it on you might fine tune it on species, but it's pretty hard to fine tune it on go get me a big male. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Go get the big one. Yeah. You ever <laughs> found, <clears throat> go ahead, Spencer. Have you ever found any crossover of ancient cultures that used falcons and dogs? Mm, yeah, so I worked in Kazakhstan. Um in Kazakhstan they're using um, birds of prey, dogs, and horses. It's like a three-prong mm. approach, right? And how old do you think that, like, three-prong approach is? Um, pretty old. I mean, horse domestication, trying to track down right now exactly when horse domestication happened um, in Central Asia somewhere, most likely. Um, but, yeah, thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, so it's interesting in Kazakhstan, problem for me as an archaeologist who uses ancient DNA, um, you know, when I was in Kazakhstan, I would talk to the local people who are still hunting with falcons and horses and dogs. And I was in a tiny, tiny little museum in the middle of nowhere. And I saw this picture of hunters and they had their horses, they had their falcons and they had their dogs and they had two wolf pups. Hmm. So Kazakhstan has one of the largest wolf populations in the world. Um, you don't really think about Kazakhstan being a place where tons of wolves there. They have these two live wolf pups. And I was asking the guy that we were with. And in the painting, the wolf pups look different than the dogs. Yeah, they're clearly wolf. I mean, okay. it's a photo. It was a black, oh, I'm sorry. It was okay. a black and white photo. I, I got you. So they had these two live wolf pups that they'd tracked. They'd been on horses with their falcons and their dogs, and they'd tracked these um, two wolf pups, and they caught them live. I see what you're saying. Okay, right. And so it. I said to them, what are they, why, why, first of all, why are they going after wolves? And what are they going to do with them live? I said, oh, they'll breed them to their dogs. Oh, put a little extra pep in them. And I was like, I was like, what are they? Tell me more. And I said, well, they, you breed your dogs with wolves to fight off the wolves. You know, oh. I'm, I'm an archaeologist though. And I'm thinking, you know, 
we study ancient DNA, <laughs> try to figure out, you know, the genetics of dogs. And I'm thinking, what and nightmare. You're messing this up for what the archaeologist yeah. in a thousand oh, years. Oh, yeah, like the no. fact that it's still happening, right? No, it's still <laughs> happening. It's happening all the time. They're like creating all kinds of noise. Oh, yeah. They're introducing, like, local wolf genetics into dogs. And this happens every, happens all over the place, right? So there's a dog breed called a Sarloose. Um, that genetically looks like an ancient dog. Right? I love talking to people about ancient breeds, and ancient dogs, and why they look ancient. Um, and this looks like an ancient dog, but it, it's not. It's a recent breed, about 50 years old, that they just took a, a, a wolf in a zoo in, in Germany and bred it with <laughs> German Shepherd or something like that <laughs> and created this Sarloose, um, probably in, in But you look at it and think you're looking at some badass thing it, from yeah. You think, Oh, even ancient. genetically. Oh, yeah, you look genetically, at. because its genetics are wolf genet wolf genetics, yeah. right? And so it. So looks if you turned up that bone in a hole in the ground, it would have threw you off. Bad news. Bad news. <laughs> really? Right. So you might get a dog that looks ancient. Oh man, this is an ancient. So dog. when you say looks ancient, you're talking about what you see in the DNA, like genetically, but also morphologically. I mean, because a dog that has recent ancestry of a wolf is going to morphologically look probably a lot like a wolf. But you know, we. I th we think what happened with dogs and the reason why no one can sort out your question of like, why, when, how, where, when did this all happen? It's probably because dogs, if they're domesticated in somewhere like Siberia, they're coming back down. They're coming back down with human populations into Eurasia via different routes, right? And of course, as they're coming down, they're interbreeding with Asian wolves and European wolves and wolves in Germany, wolves everywhere, right? Yep, yep. And so then they end up looking... All of them end up looking ancient, but with independent yeah. local wolf populations being kind of blended in there. And so for us, genetically and morphologically, it's a nightmare because it, they all look old because they've got these local wolf populations being bred into them. These local, ancient. Local, ancient, local, yeah. modern, local, historic, like wolves and dogs. If you leave a dog out, they're going to hang out <laughs> with wolves, right? They'll either be killed or they'll hang out with wolves. Um, and I mean, canids love to interbreed, love to interbreed with each other. We had some from a site in Illinois that's one of the, used to be the oldest dogs in the Americas. And we had two sites right next to each other, overlapped in time, but the dogs look very different morphologically. We had huh. these one dogs that, the one site had these really robust dogs. And then the site 20 kilometers away, the dogs were much more like gracile, so kind of thinner, more thin-boned dogs. And we were like, this is the same time period. They're 20 kilometers away from each other. That's strange that they would have that much variation. We did the genetics of the kind of gracile, thin dogs, and they were koi dogs. But they were buried. Oh. They were buried They in burials with grave goods. But they had very recent coyote ancestry. So... And they were they were in some fashion esteemed or cherished because they had a proper burial. They had proper burials. They're probably being used for hunting, but like I don't know much about what a koi, how you live with a koi dog. But maybe you guys you know about koi dogs. Oh, but I, was, I, I, I kid yesterday, and he was telling me all about what you need to do if you want to have a pet coyote. Okay, right, exactly. So. Which presumably he learned on YouTube. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that, that's not in uh, Catch a Crayfish, Count the Stars. <laughs> He's telling me like all the ins and outs of having pet coyotes. And, and uh, I was just kind of half listening to what he was telling me. <laughs> I got to throw something in. So, Yanni, you might be familiar with the name Delmar Smith with dog training. Maybe uh, Brent, 
he's he's from Oklahoma, probably one of the most famous dog trainers, horse person that you've ever met. And he had coyote pups mm. around the farm when he was a kid. And I did an interview with him, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And he just looks at me and says, Ron, I can take a coyote pup and teach him what your pointer knows. <laughs> I, it's, on, it's on audio. So it, I didn't know about that they could breed with them, but I do know that they could be trained up pretty good. Do you know? Uh, <laughs> there you go. Hey, okay. before we move on, though, I just one more question about Japan. W- oh, what right. were those dogs like? Like, what will be oh, they be similar to breed wise? So we would know? they were all over the place. So we had some mm-hmm. um, hardcore guys that had Shiba, Shibinyu, like local Japanese hunting dogs. Um, I don't know that dog. That tell me, that tell me the name again. Like Dogecoin. Yeah, a Shiba. Oh, yeah. Shiba Inu. So they got the little curly tail. They have a fox like kind of face. Yeah, I know that dog. So Japan's interesting because they got all sorts of really interesting specialized dogs. Can can I I have a trivia question planned for Angela. Oh no. Coming up. Oh, I got a bone to pick with you. Okay, well she she <laughs> may she may say too much. Can can she talk about this when we get on the trivia show? Okay. Hold on, you're gonna throw her, she's already given the answer <laughs> yes, to the bone you're gonna down. throw her? No, not not yet. It but I, I'm there, worried right? I'm worried she's approaching that territory. Okay. So I think we should just leave it until trivia. Should I pick my bone with oh, you? What do you got? <laughs> now or later <laughs> during <laughs> trivia. It's your, it's your trivia. Choice. If it's a trivia bone. Trivia bone. Okay. Oh, you know what I did that I mm. uh when we had that tent sale in the parking lot? Mm-hmm. I met this family. Oh, remember I was going to tell you the story? I sent you that picture of that little mountain man trophy. And I said, I'll tell you later. Mm-hmm. I never told you. Uh-huh. So there's this family, and they do, they've made their own trivia tournament out of your trivia show. Oh, I'm worried about what you may have done, but carry on. <laughs> well, I ran up in the office and uh-huh. gave them one of the trivia games. Yeah, a prototype that was not ready yep. for the market, yep. but that, yep. that's okay. Now one's just out there in the world. <laughs> I said, listen, I'm going to give this to you. Don't show anybody, especially anybody that works here. Uh-huh. Oh, no. I'd... Five people came up to me. You gave that guy that trivia game? I, I'd heard from five people. <laughs> I, was like, mm-hmm. I told him very clearly, put it in your bag and don't show anybody. <laughs> yes, and I had heard from five people that some family was walking around the board game. I was like, well, that's not possible. <laughs> I, I don't know how I can't fathom no, how that would happen. Show. He went on to show everybody I said okay. not to show. No. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, oh, I'll, t- yeah, I'll pick my bone. Okay. Oh. And and she will talk about her Japanese. Yep. Yanni's going to continue his line correct. of questioning. Yep. To answer your question, there are some local dogs and some European, like, bloodhound type dogs. So... That's a mix of both. And that's all she can say for now. And that's all I'm going to say. Oh, because, yeah, that's right, because the bone, mm-hmm. the, the, mm. the She bone may just give it away to everyone mm. in the room. It would be at your advantage to okay. just wait about an hour. Got it. There's a Scottish woman that has an album um, called Bones You Have Thrown Me and Blood I Have Spilled, mm-hmm. which we should work into the show. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> here, here, can we switch the wolves for a minute? Yeah. All right, but I know, so you're ancient dog, but that means categorically that you're interested in wolves. Yep, that's right. What is the term, I'm trying to think of how to set this up. When we now look at the wolf landscape, hmm. okay, we talk about, we have the Mexican gray wolf, right? And then that wolf ends at, what highway is it? There's a highway that it ends at. It'd be like, if a mule deer crosses, <laughs> if a mule deer crosses the yeah. I-5 corridor, he becomes a columbia blacktail mm-hmm. in certain places so he can go back and forth all day long right and there's if uh osceola turkey walks across a certain road he becomes the eastern turkey right and, and we have these little divisions yeah but this one actually has teeth because 
from a legal perspective in, in terms of how it's managed and like experimental species and dangerous species, there's a line, there's a highway, I can't is it I-40? I don't know. There's, there's a highway at which a, a Mexican gray wolf ceases to be a Mexican gray wolf. We cross some highway. Right. Uh, it's been pointed out to me, and I can't remember the word they used, that, that all this is nonsense. That you had, like, that... Yes, there were wolves in Mexico, but as you rode north, yeah, you never left Wolfland. It's just you would gradually see different morphological types. Meaning, right. in the desert southwest, there's wolves running around, slightly different color, generally smaller. You'd go north, and they might get bigger and grayer, and you'd go north yet, and they get bigger still, and then you go north yet, and they might get smaller and whiter. And then you roll into, um, you'd like roll into Siberia and it's like a little bit different yet, but you never, you never crossed a line at which they're not interacting and no, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't know what l- word you're looking for, but the, they were a continuous blank. Yes. They were, uh, like a, you're thinking like a monoculture of a, of <laughs> yeah, a, it was like that that you you can later go in and make like these distinctions and these arbitrary lines at which they change but they were just all there all interacting all breeding right and you would just see different demonstrations different like uh phenotypes right phenotypes okay or morphotypes so you would not have ever gone anywhere and not seen wolves if you're an ancient hunter-gatherer, there would have been wolves everywhere. I think, uh, and all these wolves can interbreed yep. with each other. They're all Canis lupus of some of some description. Um, they have globally. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, well, if you took a wolf from North America and you moved it to Eurasia, he'd be fine. They, they they're all Canis lupus. They Got could it. they could interbreed. Um, and the wolves that are here now came from. You know, when you say why. People were living and dying on Beringia. That's true. Why did they make it that way? Well, you have animals, tons of animals, moving into the Americas. So you have a constant migration of animals moving through Beringian land bridge. So probably people are following animals. You know, people didn't just wake up one day and say, like, go east. Yeah. Right? They're probably following herds of animals, both predators and prey, that are moving, you know, their way into there, including wolves. wolves you know who's brand new? The, the, I didn't know this. Elk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elk, pro- like there could have been people. Um, I'm not sure what the latest is on this, but there could have been people that showed up here before elk. Oh yeah, yeah. Isn't I mean, wild. So we think that wolves didn't actually make it here. Wolves and coyotes didn't actually make it here until fairly recently as well. Hmm. So probably wolves came over in the same time humans were right? making yeah. their way over there, which is why dire wolves will get dire. So wolves that was sure. a wolf that was here before Canis lupus. So dire wolves were probably um, the ancestor of dire wolves probably came into the Americas over a million years ago. Probably dire wolves evolved in the Americas somewhere and then were here by themselves as the they only were the kind wolf, of, the, the, the only wolf hanging out for a very long time until gray wolves and dogs eventually show up on the scene. But by then they, they're, they were so removed from each other evolutionarily. They would not have been able to. Oh, okay. So we have, so they weren't bred into, they weren't bred into the gray wolf. No, they probably just blinked out. I mean, Do you think they yeah. blinked out because of being displaced 
by wolves and dogs, or do you think they blinked out as part of the megafaunal extinctions, you know, that took off the mammoths and mastodons? It's probably a combination of both. Um, the, I mean, there are a lot of mega predators that were in the Americas that are no longer here. Mm. You know, we had American lion, American cheetah, short-faced bear, all the shimtar cats, like all sorts of predators that are no longer here because their prey went. Yeah. Um, tons of weird prey species that, you know, most people don't. There were camels in America, original horses, real horses before the arrival of European horses. We had horses here, camels, um, giant ground sloths, right? A glyptodon, which was like a ginormous armadillo. We had all sorts of things that were here. And when those things went with the climate, the predators that relied on them, you know, went as well. It didn't help. You know, humans would have seen dire wolves. By the time we got here, there would have still been dire wolves. We would have interacted with dire wolves. We would have seen them. Um, but probably didn't help that we arrive with our dogs hunting everything. Angel, how, how big was a dire wolf? Like like a dog species we'd recognize. So a dire wolf isn't as big as we, you know, Game of Sounds, Thrones. Yeah, Game of right, Thrones style. Yeah. Um, Game of Thrones makes them 300 pounds and like four feet tall. I know. I wish. No. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the average dire wolf is probably about the size of like a big Arctic timber wolf. Okay. That right. makes sense. Yeah. Do you so, know, uh, you don't know this. I was going to say, did you know that me and my wife's first date was at La Brea Tar Pits? But you had no I did not know that. <laughs> well, I'm here wow. to tell you. What a segue. <laughs> I'm here. Well, no, hear me out. So I have um, a very nice, I don't mean to brag, school display at my house built into my wall. Yeah. My first date with my wife, we went to La Brea Tar Pits. The wall. And they have the wall of dire wolf skulls. Yeah. And um, I said... At that time, someday I'm going to build one of those into my house. <laughs> you did it. And then married her and built the school wall. Wow. Stick to my word. Score. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can yeah. I tack mm -hmm. on to this conversation? This this tattoo is the, uh, that is the cattle brand of the original owners of the La Brea Tar Pit. When wow. I think it was called the La Roca Ranch. Uh, yeah. Because I also went there and I was so moved by like the dire wolf thing. Uh, that was like, I, I want something associated with that. Yeah. Yeah. Bray Tarpid's very cool. I mean, they're very cool. I worked there several times, and one time when I was working there, I had this, like, office that kind of looked out over the tar pits. And I just watched as, like, one after the other animals just adding <laughs> adding to the... Oh, like birds or the, squirrels? Oh, yeah. What? Oh, yeah, birds. Birds mostly. Just landing, and then just... Uh, <laughs> are you serious? Oh, yeah. Down I was just Periscope. like, the, the tar pits are still taking victims. But, you know... Yeah. When, as crazy that is, and, and I don't know how many hundred, 175 dire wolves that come out of there or whatever oh, yeah, the hell. yeah. All that stuff. You you think of it, it'd just be like a death, like smell like death. But they're saying that as long as those pits have been going, I think it was that if you had an incident. Yeah. Meaning huh. a baby a baby mass mammoth gets stuck in the mud. Uh -huh. A dire wolf goes out to scavenge on it. He gets stuck in the mud. A golden eagle lands <laughs> on there. He gets stuck in the mud. As long as that, or in the tar, as long as that happens every 40 years, yeah, you're fine. Yeah. Like, that would account for the the bazillions yeah. of dead things collected in that tar. And they never- But I had no idea they're still fishing. They never learned. They never <laughs> learned. It just kept going. I would just watch. And, you know, really? some bird no would idea. just land, and I thought, mm, mm, mm. 
Humans nope. must have learned though. There's, <laughs> no. there's been one human ever found yeah. there. It was like an 18 to yeah. 20 year old woman. Yeah. Uh, she was thrown in there. She had, a, she had an axe wound her head. Yeah, oh, the woman. I didn't know yeah. that. Oh yeah, yeah, no, she was thrown in there as a cover up. Whoa. Yeah, there's a dog in there. You Ten thousand year old crime. She had an axe. Yeah. She had a been blo- had a blown into the head with an axe, and then somebody great. said, "I know I'm gonna stick her." Yeah, humans <laughs> love to throw like uh-huh. bog bodies. They like, just love to throw a dead body into into one of these things: mm. bogs, tar pits, swamps. Yeah, it'd be addicting. Yeah, seeing, just, throwing things in there. What happens? Wow. Yeah. Still taking <laughs> victims. Dart. Oh, Hamid, did you just write that, Corinne? I forty. I did. Huh. I was so right. I was waiting to to get you in there. You should have celebrated my rightness. <laughs> so I, I was, you know, I was going to get there. I forty in Arizona, New Mexico is the northern boundary of the Mexican gray wolves. Mm. I got two more dire wolf questions. All right. Have you guys found where anybody was uh, any butchered remains of dire wolves? Um, we're not sure. That's the answer. So we we don't have a lot of sites where we have overlap between dire wolves. And humans. Okay. The, the few sites that we have are in New Mexico and Arizona where we have butchery sites where humans have butchered a mammoth and we also have remains of dire wolves. Got it. Um, but no obvious interaction. Like no tools made from dire wolf bones or... No. No. Nothing very specific like that. We think probably humans caught the tail end around twelve to 13,000 years ago is, is the time when a lot of those mega predators in the Americas start to go. Yeah. Um, short-faced bear, um, saber-toothed cats, dire wolves, they all start to go out. So there may have been like a kind of holdout group in the Southwest that kind of held on for some period of time and then kind of petered out. I think for our paper, we got one of the kind of latest dates of dire wolves and it was like 12,700 years ago. And that's probably towards the very end of the dire wolf population. And do you ever see, are you ever running, um, running genetic lines on, on anything living today or anything Mm. from, um, Okay, how to put this? So, dire wolves twelve thousand years ago, they were gone. Yeah. Okay. Do you ever see in anything living today, or anything that died in the last ten thousand years, where you're like, oh, somehow some dire wolf snuck in there? No. So it so it legit went. It's gone. So we checked everything we think is possible: dogs, coyotes, gray wolves. Nothing has any kind of dire wolf in it. And dire wolves hmm. and so dire wolves and, and gray wolves have a common ancestor about 5.8 million years ago. But the, after that, they diverged. So what was interesting was that we always assumed that dire wolves were just gray wolves. Mm-hmm. Like they look nearly identical in their morphology. Um, and, you know, the people at Tar Pits are the experts in dire wolves. And we just always they just look so similar. We figured that they're like a sister species or just very closely related um, and so when we did, when we finally got DNA out of them, the reason it took so long is because the stuff at, at La Brea, where most of dire wolves are coming from, covered in tar. Not a great place to find DNA. Tar, oh, is that right? Tar destroys the DNA. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, so can't can't get DNA out of those. So just can't. No, can't. Can't. Really? Any of that stuff? No, the tar just like destroys it. So oh, I didn't know that. Oh. I went on this like bonkers road trip where I just drove everywhere I could think of that might have dire wolf bones and collected a just knock on the door. bunch of dire wolf samples like Idaho Museum Natural History. Hey, do you guys have dire wolf? I just went everywhere and tried to get as many as I could 
and we managed to get five out of hundreds that we that we tested. That from where? We actually, so we have two from American Falls, from Idaho, um, and then one from Ohio, uh, one from Texas, I think, and another one from somewhere back east. Um, so five random ones, not La Brea or anywhere famous that we know dire wolves from. Um, and when we tested those, there's just no relationship at all. We found that they are more closely related to like jackals than they are gray wolves or dogs or coyotes or anything like that. They were? They diverged so long ago. So their ancestor that was related to like a jackal, African jackal ancestor, diverged, came over from Africa, across Eurasia and into the Americas, right? And that split happened 5.8 million years ago. And so their relationship to wolves is not very close nope. relationship. They just look like wolves. It's like convergent evolution. They do the same thing. They live in the same place. They eat the same thing. They kind of, so they look the same, but yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the Grateful Dead? I've, I've become familiar with a lot of things that are tangential to dire wolves. Well, <laughs> since so you, know this I, you know where I'm going with oh, this. Yeah. You know where I'm going with this. I do. Yeah. They have one good album. Yeah. Reckoning. Yeah. That's it. You think? That's it. <laughs> okay. I don't care what Doug Duran plays in his car. They got one good album, Reckoning, okay. which includes the song Dire Wolf. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you should license that, Phil. We could play it during the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> sure. It'll work uh, out just fine. When I talk about Dire Wolves, a lot of things come up. Game of Thrones, obviously. Is yeah. Like, no, I don't have traffic and that kind of stuff. Is that- <laughs> I don't like any kind of new. I don't like any kind of new stuff that people know about. Game of Thrones. Because <laughs> then it's just I'm always afraid my brain will become like their brain. Well, you got to work backwards yeah. then. You got Game of Thrones, and then you got D and D, Dungeons Dragons. Anyone? Who yeah, plays Dungeons I, I, I'll Dragons? talk about that. Yeah, the guys in high school were into that. Dire Wolves. There's like no. a Dire Wolf card. Dire Wolves are part of that, and then you know, Grateful Dead. Those are kind of the touchstones of. Of dire wolves. Most people, though, a lot of people had no idea dire wolf was a real animal. Thought it was a completely mythological like creature that was just made up for Game of Thrones or made up for Dungeons and Dragons, and don't know it's real that it was a real animal. Hmm. Yeah. Did you know? Did you all know that dire wolf was a real animal? Yeah, dude. I told you from my first day. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew about probably not in high school. I did, but Yeah. yeah. Game of Thrones. Who's who's the S on your necklace? What's that? My kid. What's your kid's name? Scout. Huh. Oh, that's uh, from the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kill a Mockingbird. Kill a Mockingbird. It's a, a novel. It's I also a movie. Like <laughs> Steve, Holy cow, Steve man. how many books do you know to me to read? Okay. <laughs> if I quote something, you're it's probably from a forced movie. to in high school. Yeah. You yeah. named it. After, are you familiar with the uh, the the somewhat misogynistic theory that Truman Capote wrote that book? Uh, no. Yeah. No. So, yeah. uh, I learned that in the movie Capote. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, that's in there. Yeah. Wasn't he supposedly the Dale character in the in the novel? Oh, you're asking the wrong guy now. Yeah, like Harper (laughs) Lee. Harper (laughs) Lee doesn't have a big pre-publication record, and then kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And when they line out what her influences, it's like Courtney Love. All that, all that great music by Hole. Was when she was hanging out with Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. That's another misogynistic music theory. And then, so it's like that—that that wasn't actually her. It was Billy Corgan. And then that the Truman Capote wrote *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Didn't know that. And published it under her name because then she never—I I guess she didn't like write anything after. I'm—I'm I'm not telling you a theory <laughs> that I think. I'm just telling you about a theory. It's okay. like when I tell jokes you're not supposed to tell now. 
I tell people about the joke. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> I don't tell the joke. I'm like, you should be aware. There's a joke that goes like this. <laughs> should I rename my daughter now? I don't know. Okay. No, it's All after right. the movie. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's a movie too. It's a movie too. Spencer, what are you what are you dilly dallying around in here? You got another question? <laughs> oh uh, no, I, I see think a little I, cursor we, hopping on, all around. Yeah, we hit on things. I was just making notes. Things we to, could hit on this. I feel like the the rotten meat fermentation uh, topics are interesting. You guys take over. Oh yeah, Giuliani. <laughs> well, it was just in the notes uh, about the consumption of rotten meat. You want to speak to that? Do you want to speak to that? I, I can't speak <laughs> to it. No, <laughs> you ask if, you like to rot, if you could. <laughs> Um, yeah. Was it was it the wolves or the humans that were doing that? So I think the the idea behind this this is still a kind of new idea um, that humans, you know, wolves do this. They cache meat somewhere. They kill something. They eat their fill, and then they'll they'll cache the meat um, in water or you know under snow or something like that, and come back to it. By which point, it's you know sometimes putrid, rotten, but fine, but fine for them, right? So the idea is did um, Neanderthals or modern humans kind of pick up on this idea of um, if you put meat into an anaerobic environment, if you put it in in the water in a frozen lake or something like that and come back for it next season um, when you're low on meat, you know, is this something that you could kind of get away with? Um, So... I have a good friend, Melanie. She worked at the Body Farm in Tennessee. Oh yeah, yeah. Where they do all that uh, that stuff for corpse um, study. Yeah. yeah. What's the word? In, it combines like insects and crime. Yeah, um, forensic entomology. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Studying like when does a a blowfly hatch on a dead body or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So she was working there. She's a professor at Purdue now. But um, we were working on this idea of like. We're trying to figure out why nitrogen values. And, Can you hold off for a yeah. minute? Yeah. <laughs> that be a, if I was a producer, I'd be taking notes right now <laughs> about getting someone from the body farm on the show. We, okay. Yeah. We've yeah, talked about forensic entomologist, forensic and just someone who like puts a person out and then a while later goes and checks on them. Yeah. I mean, it's, in, it's interesting stuff. Can you, can you hook Corinne up? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are a couple of them. There's one in Texas. There, there are a couple kind of around where they're doing. We want the person who's best body at it. farm. <laughs> the the one at Tennessee is kind of the the most well known one. And you'll make an intro one. for Corinne. Absolutely, Corinne. We'll get I, you, I read we'll in the notes someone. too that you can donate your body there for science, and you can. They're kind of full up. something to consider. They're kind of full up. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a lot of people <laughs> that want it. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Wasn't there a whole thing about a? Uh, one of the um, lab, the heads of the lab at, was it Harvard or another university of a cadaver lab where they were actually selling off body parts? No. Didn't we put this in the notes? I wouldn't mind picking one up. <laughs> I swear we did. For the Get wall. your own experiments. Yeah. Be like, see that? You know what that is? It's an arm. That's <laughs> <laughs> Frank. <laughs> right in my freezer. All right. Sorry, y- Yanni. Go ahead with your line of questioning. <laughs> I don't think I had a question. We were listening to oh, um, Angela explain about the body. I farm. mean, last I heard, they were they were full up, and that they had their they were at max capacity of um, you know the number of people that they could take on that had signed up <laughs> to donate their bodies. So many people want to donate donate their bodies, and there's a pretty um, 
you know, an extensive process of paperwork that you need to do before, you know, because part of the work that they're doing at that lab is, you know, being able to track things that have to do with knowing, you know, kind of what your diet is and what oh, your age is and things like yeah. that. So they need some background information on who you are and kind of what kind of lifestyle you you lived or things like that. Um, so, you know, my friend was clipping cadaver fingernails to do some some work on on cadaver fingernails, <laughs> things like that. I mean, it's really it's it's really interesting work. Definitely be a good episode. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members 
a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Are you familiar? I think this might have got debunked, but there was a site where they had they the, the way they interpreted this site at the time was that someone had they had killed some mammoths, mm. put those mammoths in a pond, and then took the intestines and packed them full of gravel, no. and wove the gravel over wove the gravel filled intestines as weights. Oh, okay over the carcasses to hold them underwater. So mm. the intestine rotted away, but you had this skeletal remains of, the, of this meat overlaid with these cylinders mm. of gravel. And that's what they suspected that they had made like, Inter- no, yeah, I don't anchors. Know I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I think we think of ancient peoples as kind of like slow. No. Right. No, of course not. They would have, Figured out all sorts of stuff like this, right? They would have figured out pretty quickly. I don't think of that as like um, a new timey idea. What? Packing intestines full of gravel and laying them over some meat. Yeah, I mean, you could. I got friends that none of them's proposed that we do that. <laughs> you try it. I mean, next time you guys go out hunting, take take a carcass that has something left on it and put it put it in a you know a cold body of water, cover it with some gravelly intestines, and see how long. Yep. See how long it takes. We've done that just to keep flies mm, where it's yeah. not, it's kind of nasty the way it looks after a while, but between getting full of fly eggs and hot or putting it in the creek, we've opted to just stick it in the creek. How long did you leave it? Just there? days, a couple days. What was it like when you took it out? Just looks like something that drowned. It gets bled out real bad. So it gets white. Right. But I don't think if you Pepsi challenged it, I don't think you'd be able to taste the difference to be honest with you. It just looks, it just looks off putting. How long do you think you could leave it? In the oh. water. And well, if you put it in a, if you put it in a creek and that creek was running like a glacial stream mm-hmm. where that thing's running 40, 50 degrees, I bet you put them there for weeks and it'd still be edible. You should try it. Yeah, as long as something else wasn't starting to eat on it. Yeah. But just Some cold or, glacial water. In there. Yeah. I guess the colder it is, probably less bacteria and whatnot in there to eat it. Right? Yeah, in the case where we did it, that stuff was a glacier mm. earlier that day. So it stayed... Really yeah, cold. Real cold. Anaerobic. No. Yeah. Did yeah. you notice any trends with the average lifespan of domestic dogs thousands of years ago? Did it seem very different? He, not really. You know, we found lots of 10, 12-year-old dogs. Wow. Ancient dogs, which is, you know, not that far off from, you Today, know. I mean, really? how, how how old do your guys' hunting dogs? I always say 12 is an easy number. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah that's about right. <clears throat> Of active hunting. And not necessarily the last year or two, but in some cases, you know. What is the life cycle of like a hunting dog in terms of how long does it take like to train? When's it get good? When's it kind of plateau? And then when does it? Uh, I In the bird dog world, I don't know in the hound world, Yanni, but in the bird dog world, 
We always say by three years, you know what you have. Mm. By his third season, and of course that takes training to get there. His die but, has been cast. Right, right. Yeah. Like he's, Put it this way, he's not going to get better. He's not going to start pointing them 40 yards away and giving you more opportunity. Whatever he's developed over a couple of three seasons, there's your dog. How long till you know? How long till you know what you got? Mm. Uh, usually, you can tell about a year and a half. Like you used to get one hunting season behind you, and you see potential, and then you're just hoping to build on that. But sometimes it just never builds. Got it. It just. But I you form a strong that... at a year and a half. You have a strong hunch. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. And at three years, you know. Yeah, I got a dog right now that hunts behind me. <laughs> just He's just making sure you didn't miss I just, I just can't bear to color. <laughs> we lined up in North Dakota last year. He's like, year. I'll take off the rear, Ronnie, just in case yeah. you pass one by. <laughs> we had five of us pushing this big state land, and Eddie's behind us. She's doing a nice job of going left to right, but she's behind us. So I think Trent said, well, how about if we turn around with the guns and walk backwards? So, so yeah, she's not going to be a rock star. But, uh, right. And how, how long does it take one? with a, a hound? Yeah, well, you, but, oh. One second. I want this, this, rear, this rear hunting dog. Well, So that kind of thing, there's no way you're going to correct that. And I'll be honest with you. I know for a fact because I know who owned her and, they, and I got them from her. She did something very similar to that in her little puppy test before she was a year of age. And you're not mm. going to correct that? No. You're yeah. not going to say, listen. Oh, you could over <laughs> you could overhandle her and call her around and call her around and call her around. I just let her hunt. I, she hunts fine with one person, but with more than one person, she decides to go left to right behind you. I don't know. But how long does the hound take? I, I think Yanni? Brent could probably speak to it better than I can. Well, uh, it's with... Uh, they have been bred so strong over the last 50, mm. 60 years. Um, Your line of coon dogs. Yes. Mm. They, yeah. It's, it's, and you, all the, you know, if you're pleasure hunting or you're competition hunting, you're getting your dogs from the same place, mm. all out of the same litters, yeah. and they're bred for competition. So the, the breeding is to have a dog that's barking quicker. That's treeing quicker for competition because in competition you don't necessarily have to see a coon mm -hmm. in the tree in the in the summertime. If the leaves are full of, if the trees are full of leaves and you can't see a coon, it's called circle points, and you get credit for that. You know you could you could win a coon hunting competition at night and never look at a coon if there was any doubt that there wasn't a coon in that tree. You know if you if you went to a, a tree that didn't have any leaves on it. And you couldn't, you, everybody could like look. Like a dead tree in a swamp. Yeah. yeah, you could look all the way around it and there wasn't any holes in it. And you could see, you know, that's called slick treeing. You know, there's nothing in there. That's that's a minus. Mm. If you tree on that same tree in the summertime when it's full of leaves and you just can't happen to see it, you can say, well, theoretically, you know, you could hide <laughs> six up there, but we just can't see them. But that's, you know. So, Brent, what age would positive. you say would you see your yeah. best? Well, my, my dog was started treeing by himself when he was nine months old. Oh. But and that's not, I mean, that's not highly unusual. They're, they're no, that's even, instinct. Yeah, it's yeah. All, that's what it is. Right. He, he is following that genetic code that's been instilled in him. But at a year, like you were saying, a year and a year and a half, that's when most folks start deciding, yeah, I'm going to keep this dog or, you know, maybe he's got some characteristics that I don't like. That I'm that somebody else is okay with, and I'm not a competition hunter, so I'm just I'm just looking for 
when I cut the dog loose, that when he starts treeing, that he's he's looking at a looking at a coon. So, what he does between the time I turn him loose and he treats a coon is really immaterial to me, as long as he barks enough that I can keep up with him. He's not running deer, not running chasing armadillos or treeing possums or anything like that off game, which he doesn't. And it's it's you you talk about wolves and and how dogs came from that. You know, it's inherently against what a predator would do, mm-hmm. chase and prey to make noise. You know, a, a coon dog or any kind of dog that chases game that barks out loud to for you to know where he's at is really going against what would would be able for them to fill their dinner plate. Because if he's chasing a coon to eat, because it's a prey drive, a prey instinct that he's going after. He's giving him a lot of warning. He's, he's barking. He's saying, I'm coming, you know. Yeah. And that that's no bueno. Find that, find that tree with the hole in it. Exactly. Yeah. He's so, like Kevin Murphy. Yeah. I feel the need to quote Jerry Clower. Jerry Clower said, when Brummy trees out on a coon, you don't have to worry about no possum or no wildcat. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly so right. How, how many prime years will you get yeah. then out of, out of that? Oh, dog? you can, you know, with proper care... And he gets cared for properly. Um, you can hunt a dog, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. Mm. And and we hunt. I keep I keep him in shape. We hunt, you know, year round. Um, his uh, dog house has an air conditioner in it. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, that'll build up heat tolerance <laughs> and and a uh, heater, so it never gets hotter than seventy five <laughs> degrees in there or colder than fifty five. Hey, Steve, did you know that? Your hometown, my adopted hometown, is home of one of the most famous coon dog walker breeders in the history of the world. No. Oh, yeah, the Giddings family, Chuck Frank Giddings. Oh, Frank no. Giddings. Frank Giddings. What? Chuck, really? Yeah, it, he had a. Is that where like Carl got his walkers yeah, from and everything? Yeah, oh. and his son uh, Chuck lives right next door to me. That log home next to me. Mm-hmm. That's Chuck Giddings' house. Seriously? So, yeah, and his dad is in his eighties, and he still runs coons every night. Every night. Every night. So is that, well, no, you can't, because I thought it was a training season there. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Scratch that out. <laughs> Cut that out, Phil. Yeah. In well, Ar- in no, you're right. There is a season when it is closed. You're right. But any night that he could yeah. be out, no, that's good he correction. is out. That's good correction. And, never mind. Leave yeah. it in, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> he backtracked. Thank yeah. you. In Arkansas, you can hunt, you know, year, you can hunt year-round. And you can take game. You can kill coons on private land year-round, and there's no limit on them. Now, I don't kill very many coons except in the wintertime when the when the fur is good. And yeah. I'll, you know, I'll bring the fur home. Mm-hmm. But the um, you can still get out there and do it. And, the, you know, those dogs, there's the domestication of them. And a lot of people would think, or I used to think, that it was you had to train a dog to make him do what you wanted to. It had to be by force. You would think, you know, somebody really you had, had to be heavy-handed with a dog mm. to get him to do something, but that's not the case. No. You know, every dog that I've ever owned, even Labradors, when I was training Labradors, they, they have an inherent desire to please you. And you just got to, if, if you can't show that dog that you appreciate what he's doing if, and, and let him know that when, when Waylon trees and he, he, when I cut him loose and he, he tracks, he barks on the trail and then he trees and I praise him, that's all... Mm. That that's that's his reward. His yep. reward is not the coon in the tree, because mm-hmm. those those days are over with. His reward is me being pleased with how he did it. 
If he goes out to do it again. Yeah. And if, he, and if he goes out and does something, he does something wrong. I mean, knock on wood, he's never treated a possum. But how I would deal with that is he wouldn't get a reward. He'd just He'd be put, like, come on, let's get out of here. I'd put a, I'd put a snap, on, a leash on him and lead him away and cut him loose again. And, and never, it would be different for him. He'd be like, wow, he that would, was oh, he's like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> no high five. <laughs> he usually rubs my ears real good when we do this. Yeah. Alexis is still going to let him come in the house. But <laughs> Did those ancient yeah. people get the same feeling of just joyful pride that I got when I was in Arkansas and Mingus treated his first coon. That doesn't show up in the genes. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, I, we, I've seen some really elaborate, elaborate dog burials, ancient dog burials. There's one site in Sweden where um, big cemetery, they got humans in, big cemetery, but humans in one location um, young children in this kind of like middle ground location and then a whole cemetery of dogs. And some of those dog burials, one of those dog burials is the most like richly decorated, more than the human burials. It's got, I mean, all sorts of shells and, and points and red deer antlers and ochre and the whole, it's it's um, uh, curled up with its tail kind of between its legs and its its legs tucked up. And I mean, you have to think that a dog's not being buried like that unless he was a bad there's mother. Something, <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's something like they probably you know, saved somebody in the family just, from something. Yeah, right? exactly, man. They're just yeah. thinking like this is the greatest dog ever. But also, you know, there's no telling how many hunting dogs they lost. Oh, yeah, in the forest, right? And right. the dog gets buried in the forest and never makes it right, makes it back. Um, but I mean, what for me for domestication studies, I think. One of the most interesting questions for me is this, you know, thing that you guys are talking about where they are the ancestors of wolves. They have a prey drive, but somehow we've something's happened in the relationship with humans where they have most dogs released to mm -hmm. let the final step be kind of taken over by humans, right? To make the kill, to to make whatever that dis that final decision is on. Okay, oh, I've chased it. What the carcass it, is going to be used for? It, I've we've I've gotten you here. I've done my job as I've used all my innate senses as a dog to get us here. Now you're the one to make the kill. Yeah, right? that's a good point, man. Right. Or when that They've raccoon falls that, out of the tree, right. yeah, yeah, it's like you get like a couple seconds, yeah. and yep. then I step in and I portion it out. Right, like right. I exactly. get what I want. You know, so this is first. the question of like, how yeah. did that? This is interesting to me of like how that process happened. That's a really interesting where point. Yeah. Wolves released that control over the final step of the kill, yeah. and then what happens afterwards. And so when people tell me, you know, we've we we chose to domesticate wolves like we would have we're hunting alongside them I'm trying to think like you know it's almost like twilight like running in the woods alongside the wolves and you're hunting deer and i'm hunting deer and so we decided to hunt together i just can't see that i can't see the scenario in which you make a kill you're there the pack of wolves and you and a deer between you. Like, I'll yes. take it from here, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the first, the first wolf that looked at the hunter and went, "Go ahead." Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, right. seventy. Right. I would say easily seventy percent of the dogs that I hunt with now, if if it's during the kill season in the winter and we shoot a coon out, they'll they'll grab a hold of it and then. That's it. They'll just turn and walk away and go look for another. Yeah, they just mm. need a little. Mm -hmm. They just want they a little. Maybe it's the them. same way. You think he's just going to tear the thing to yeah. shreds, but he gives it one little. 
and yeah, he well, drops so he, it. And he gets his food from you. No, yeah. my kids He's have a red squirrel it. dog. It is an expert red squirrel hunter. Um, and all she wants to do is she wants to know that they've been shot down out of the tree. Mm. Won't eat them. Yeah. No desire to pick it up. Yeah. She's treeing those red squirrels? Oh, my God, yeah. She trees them. With a bark? Nope. That's the other, I said, if you could get that dog to bark, they oh. got to follow her. She'll hear if a pine squirrel cuts out, she's going to that pine squirrel. And, and she will get and sit at the base of the tree and stare at that squirrel. And if you find her, there's a squirrel there. And she's sitting there staring at it. And when they shoot it down, she's just done. Mm. And yeah. did you do any gun preparation for this or did it just work out? No, they kept telling me how good she was at it. And I kind of didn't believe it. But it's <laughs> it's true, man. That dog is a... That dog will get one squirrel after the other, after the other, after the other. Right. Yeah. Because pine squirrels are so vocal. And they have mm-hmm. the the Achilles, their Achilles heel. I'm not saying every one of them does it, but when they're not happy with your presence, they... <laughs> oh, so it just keeps mm-hmm. it going. Yeah. There's always... If you're in a good area, there's always two or three of them going... <laughs> at you. And so she just goes to that one and she'll find out where it is and stare at it. And they'd act different. They'll... When she trees them, they'll tree lower and out in the open and often sit there barking at her. Not like they would with a person. Yeah. So they, my kids clean up on them. Anyway, zero interest. Mm-hmm. What's happened? Something's happened. Where like, like it wants to see them. It wants to go up and be like, yep, yeah, that one's dead. Yeah. And that's it. But they've like <laughs> that last final step of like predator response. Partnership. Has like yeah. released mm-hmm. to humans. That's a great point. Right. Why you'd go through all that trouble. And then a, a thing that would once reward you and your pack with mm-hmm. all this food, you'd go through all of that same trouble yeah. and in the end not get to be the one. You get to scraps. Not get to be the one that decides on allocation. You do all the work <laughs> yeah. and then you just like let go and then like beg, <laughs> beg yeah. for yeah, a scrap like, of the Maybe food. he'll give us some. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is interesting when we have conversations with people who have cats. It didn't happen until they made kibble dry dog food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? But I mean, you know, people who have cats who, you know, those cats go out and they'll fend for themselves all day long. Um, but Yeah, get a cat dogs, to do that. Yeah, yeah. Most dogs would like, they can chase, they can. Yeah, I can tell you a little something about cats as far as law enforcement goes. Anytime any kind of investigation where we had a death, you know, an uh, unobserved death where someone, old person or something may have died in the house alone. Cats and they're feeding on them. They had a cat, the cat would be eating them. Where's the cat go? What's it like to eat? Nose first. Mm. Nose. Yeah, that's where they'll start. And then you go in there with a dog and the dog will be starving to death. We'll be dead laying beside them. They won't won't eat them. Cat will eat your nose. Cat will eat you. Be a good name for the show, Corinne. Take your last, take your last <laughs> breath. Cattle yeah. eat your nose. Yeah, I mean, see how that does yeah. on search. I was gonna say, just crush, crushing the SEO. <laughs> this podcast all about dogs. We put cat in the title. Take that. <laughs> yeah. Cattle eat your nose. <clears throat> so, like, I'm thinking C A T apostrophe L L, right? Cattle, Cattle eat your nose. <laughs> right. Then we have to put like a parenthetical part of the title, like dogs are better or something. I got one last question. Then we're gonna hand it over to Ronnie. All right. Um, you're not interested in dogs like uh, you don't have a bunch of dogs. I have dogs. Oh, you do? Okay. I thought you were saying that you just didn't, you weren't into like actually having them. No, I have dogs. I've always had dogs. Oh, I see. My okay. parents I, had I, dogs. I, I, I somehow born. in the pre-chat, I picked up that, mm. okay, I didn't get that. Yeah. I have Westies. Oh, I did pick that Westies. up. Okay. I thought yeah. you were saying you were fixing to get into Westies, yeah. but you're no, already I'm, into No, I'm, I'm fixing to get into some new dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fixing we to get into some, um, 
we're I, I want like big livestock guarding dogs, you know, like Do you like, got livestock? No. That's what we were saying. <laughs> she goes, now I got to get goats. <laughs> now I have to get goats and sheep and, and property. You're going so in the wrong, you know, you're dogs. taking this in the wrong direction. You don't start with like, <laughs> usually you'd start with like the I'm animal. I'm going to build a jail. And then I'm going to go look find for criminals. Some criminals. No, this is what I, this is, this is part of what I argue with some of my, you know, archaeology colleagues about is like, if you decide you're going to, you're going to use dogs to hunt, uh-huh. right? And the dogs are like the primary decision makers, then... Does all technology follow from using dogs to hunt? Does the other technology that you use then have to align with how you hunt with dogs? You know, my guess would be, and I don't. My guess would be with humans, it was that initially it was that it was um, useful for an activity already occurring. Mm. And not that they said, hey, if we had one of those, we would change how we go about this. Yeah. It was probably, you know, when we try to drive all those things up into that box canyon, that would go even better. Yeah. With a dog. Yeah. So the ethnography and the ethnohistory, when you read about hunting, I read a lot of like, you know, modern ethnography, but, but historical ethnography about people who went and lived with indigenous groups somewhere and how they use dogs. And you hear similar stories over and over. There's always like a prize dog who's just the best and everyone wants the puppies from that prize dog and mm. like allows them to do something that they couldn't do before. You always oh, hear stories okay. about some type of prey, usually something semi-dangerous, boar or something like that, that is just too dangerous to go after on their own. But now that they have dogs, they've decided they're going to go after it. So I was wrong. Well, for certain yeah. animals, I think yeah. for some like the most more dangerous animals, you hear this in like um, Arabia, for example, like going after ibex, super dangerous, and they get themselves up into like crevices and stuff that you're not going to go after them, but your dogs will. Got it. So prey species that you normally would be like, nah, not. It not opened wor- up opportunity. Opened up opportunity. Well, you know what backs you up on that? <clears throat> the last thing you're going to do is catch a lion. Yeah. I mean, you live. A, <laughs> yeah. You could live a lifetime. I mean, a mountain lion. Yeah, you live a lifetime and be like, uh, I spent my whole life in the mountains and I've seen two mountain lions. Yeah. So that opens up a thing that you just are not going to accomplish. Yeah. And it makes it possible. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not like it. So that that contradicts my earlier point. You're right. It's like you're not going to get one without it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. There are certain there are certain things you also hear a lot of stories of. We used to have to go out in five or ten person hunting groups but now phil phil can go out by himself this phil or that phil any phil phil can go out by himself with a group of five dogs and do what we used to have to take 10 people now the other eight people can go and do something actually useful around the camp or go somewhere else and do something else so it frees up people to do other things because a pack of dogs can do what a pack of humans would do and probably much better Right. Uh, me and Yanni inter- interviewed a guy. Do you remember this, Yanni? A Chimane guy. He had to tell yeah. his story in Chimane to someone who spoke Spanish. Mm. No, to someone to, that spoke, r- correct, that spoke Chimane and Spanish. Yo, he told to someone went, who knows Chimane and Spanish who then listened and told it and then to a Spanish to English. A Spanish mm. English speaker and so then we're getting us. it like third hand telephone, however telephone it was a big story about um hunting jaguars with mm, a dog mm-hmm. 
and a jaguar that had killed some of his dogs and eventually getting a jaguar after it killed his primary dog yeah his main dog yeah yeah so my colleague that i told you about before in nicaragua lots of jaguars where he is and he says you know when he goes back the percentage of dogs that are left from the from the year before is very low and it's largely due to jaguars um, but they're also using the dog. They're using the dogs as hunting dogs, but also as, in many ways, like kind of, not bait. But if if jaguar is going to attack someone, then you rather it attack your dog yep. than attack you. But we yeah. were in a village. They had lost at the time we were there, and it continued for a while. At the time we were there, they had in the last month or two, I can't remember the timing. They had lost twenty four dogs mm-hmm. to a jaguar, mm-hmm. which they thought to be sing- a single jaguar had killed twenty four dogs. I can't remember it was the last month or two, and it went on after we left. Right. But this is also the reason why when you ask people in a village like that, like how much time you spend training your dogs on like, like how much time you're gonna spend training a dog that like tomorrow could get killed by a jaguar. Mm-hmm. So you rely on some level of like natural ability and instinct, which is probably also why hunting dogs can be really great there, but also really frustrating because they don't have much training. You're just hoping for a good one. When you do get a good one, you breed them and you, everyone wants the puppies because they're hoping that that one's natural abilities of hunting, you know, kind of pan out. But you don't have three years because they might get killed by a jaguar tomorrow. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that was a lot of training investment to put into the dog that's going to get killed tomorrow. So um, I think the use of hunting dogs is highly correlated to like what prey you're going after, the environment that you're in. Um that determines how useful a hunting dog may or may not be. And a lot of places where you read ethnography or ethnohistory of hunting dogs, um, you know, the use of hunting dogs is like critical to to their economy. They can't go out and take the number of animals that they could. They were doing it by themselves. Or, you know, you have a single guy who's trying to feed his family and he can go out and maybe take down one small animal, but with a pack of dogs, he can corral an animal and then kill it and and make a much bigger kill or something like that. So... You know, there are these kind of variations based on what what prey you're going after or, you know, your dogs make it eight, nine years with productive hunting. But if they're in an environment where mountain lions are going after them or jaguar or something like that, wolves (laughs) wolves going after them or something like that, maybe you wouldn't put the time and effort into the training if you're losing dogs more regularly or something like that. Yeah, concentrate more on on quantity over quality. quality. Right. With your dogs, do you guys... are are they trained by humans only, or is it reliance on other dogs? There's, that's the two mm. methods that, that that coon dogs use, and but they're they're so independent now. That's when I was training mine. I was training with a friend of mine. He had an older dog, a well established and straight coon dog. He didn't treat possums or anything, and and we'd cut them loose together. Mm. But they would, after 150, 200 yards. Of, of my dog following him around, he would just break off on his own. And that, and that independence has been bred into him a lot because of the, of the competition hunting mm. where, um, Oh, cause they got, he's got to score his own. He's got to scoot his own points. You don't want like a, you don't want a tag along dog. Right. Cause, no. cause of who, if he's second to the tree, then he's, his points are, are, are less. Mm. But if he goes and oh. does his own thing, he gets the same. So they prioritize the dog that, doesn't like peers. That's more independent. Yeah. Mm. Uh, huh. And what is the like through rate? If you have a, a litter of six pups, how many of those six pups in, in the dogs you're talking about turn out to be? There's a guy that had a, the, who's the grandfather of 
my dog. And that dog was like one of 10 or 12. And it was the rest of them were nothing. And this dog mm. was an absolute world beater. They, he bred him with another world beaten female. A whole litter of puppies that you would think would be dynamos. None of them were worth anything. Ugh. Bred them again the next time, and maybe three out of 10 were world beaters. Hmm. So it's just. You know, there's a lot of math that goes in there that nobody understands because it's not always best and best bred together make the best. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't work that way. And I, I can't I can't answer hmm. why that is. But yeah. you would think the same, and like, like me and my brothers, we got the same mom and the same daddy. I'm the only pretty one out of the whole bunch. <laughs> so it's the same thing. Oh, your brothers must be... <laughs> So, right. didn't Jerry Clower call you pretty? He did. He said, you're a pretty boy. <laughs> Man, that puts him in a whole new life. <laughs> did he say it like how, like, say a clown might have said, like a, like, like a, you know, like no. a creepy way? Like a grandpa. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not like, you know what I'm saying. No, like, no. <laughs> All right, Ronnie, take it away. Uh, well, I just want to thank you for letting me come out to do a little advertising. Yep. Um, you let me come out a couple of years ago and we released the Upland Institute, the uh, pointing dog training v- series, which has done very well. And I do get notes from emails, heard about you on Meat Eater Podcast. Great. Finally got a puppy and they remembered it. So I called you up and I said, uh, I got into the project I'm working on right now. And I had so much fun, like getting into the, uh, the et- not that I'm the editor, but sitting in on the editing process mm-hmm. and watching how. You could just take a bunch of, let's say, B-roll, even if it's on purpose, and you could turn it into something. And Matt, my partner, he, he loves the job of editing. And uh, he kind of said, what could we do down the road? He said, "He said, I, you know, he, we're burning, he's burning the candle at both ends, but uh, he said, what could we do? I mean, he's, he's got said, a day job. Right, yeah. as an editor, you know. But he, uh, he would like to do this full time. I'm like, um, boy, I mean, we could do... I didn't want to do a different training video because I already did a training video. And it, I, it came to me like I get so, I filter so many people's emails. Ronnie, I'm getting my next dog. Ronnie, I'm getting my first dog. Ronnie, I'm, I went from German short hairs and I want to try one of your big long eared Broncos. So I realized it's just like until you've been in it, there's a lot of people just will never really get into the minutia of how dogs are bred, how they're selected, how it happens. So we decided to build this series that we're filming. We're in the middle of filming. We've got a couple episodes done. It's called Behind the Dog. Because it's kind of like if you're a dog person, everything you do is behind the dog. Or and, in the case of your dog, in front of the dog. <laughs> in the one dog's case, right? Exactly. So, yeah, so Behind the Dog Films, what we're doing is we're – trying to find, let's say, the top-tier breeders of every breed in this country. And there's a lot of them, right? Um, we did one with a short hair, a German short hair pointer breeder. We're working on editing one that we did with a, a Weimarweiner, a Weima, I'm going to do it right, a Weimarweiner, or Weimarweiner. Was uh, that how it's supposed to go? Yeah, Weima, yeah. It's and, like Wagner Group and the Wagner Group. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then, of course, you know, a, a more difficult one will be and we found a Labrador breeder, and there's so many Labradors in this country. Mm. But what we're trying to do is find the breeders that put the most back into the breed. 
Got it. From health testing to hunt testing and then actual hunting. Like there's never going to be someone who just shows their dogs in a show ring, but they might hunt them, show them, and sign up for every possible health test they could because they're so concerned that like, look, I'm selling these dogs for a lot of money. Now, Brent, remember what a dog cost 20, even 20 years ago. Yeah. And we spent $200 on a dog or 500 maybe. And so we want to kind of bring these. What, what are, not, don't give me the extremes, but right. what's happened to that price? Two to five, 20 years ago has become. 2000. Okay. Mm-hmm. That would be easy right in the middle, $2,000. Yeah. Yeah, so, there was an auction recently, like an outfitter auction down in New Mexico, a mule and hound auction. I don't know what the mules went for, but there were a couple dogs that broke 20,000. For lion hounds. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Dry ground yeah. lion. Yeah, yeah, that's every day in the coon hound world. So that's what we're, that's like kind of our grail quest. We, we want to find the top tier breeders uh, and eventually even go down to terriers mm. or collies. Yep. You got you know, a ways to go for you oh, get there. We got, but it gives me something to do. I'm retired, so yeah. I can just drive around the country. And, well, let me just chime in about. Yeah. So what I thought was, what, you, you, what one did I, was I looking at? I can't remember the you kind. You were of looking dog. at the one about the German short hair breeders. So, right. so Ronnie's at a breeder, right? Kind of doing a podcast. Yeah, and they're sh- but they're showing. So they they have all these dogs running around different right. age classes. Mm-hmm. And just this is just one of the many things in here, right? Is they stand one up. Okay. They mm-hmm. stand one up on a pedestal. What do you call that thing? Uh, just tap a platform. They stand platform. one up on a platform and they say, when I'm, when I'm looking at these, here's what I'm looking for. Right. Very specific. The, the nose the com- would do this. The confirmation. Yeah. It would stand this way. This right. should look like this. This should look like this. So even if you weren't at, even if you weren't going to that breeder, let's say oh, you right. couldn't afford it or whatever, you could, you still watch it and you'd be like, oh, Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I go look at pups, I'm trying to select a pup from my neighbor, right. from the dog pound, whatever. These are attributes. That, that would be canine attributes. Yeah, they'd be like, <clears throat> you don't know. And like you said, you don't know yet how it's going to turn out, right. maybe. But these are attributes that would be signifiers of, of, of some of the things you might want to look for right. in early selection. <clears throat> right. right. Yeah. And we will in some of the episodes, we'll get into it as deep as we did in the first one where we showed... Basically, we took like a year-old dog and then went backwards to a 16-week-old dog, then a 12, then an 8, then a 4. And what she did with these pups for confirmation, it's been done for decades. Another woman started this where they literally can pick the dog up by the, by the, under the collar and between the legs and just watch the way the legs hang. I mean, some of them are going to walk like me, Steve, and you know how funny I walk, right? Oh, yeah, With yeah. my so knees out. Long ways, well, a, <laughs> a, a puppy will show you that same thing. If he's going to be cowhocked, which is where they, it would be knock kneed if you were a person, you don't want to find out that you're going to have a cowhock. It's going to run funny and eventually not be able to do the performance you want to do. It's going to wear out its back end, it's going to wear out its joints, just like I did, you know, walking with my, my knees going out in two directions. So, yeah, there's things you could learn. You don't have to be interested in a German short hair. You could watch what she's doing with that puppy and be like, wow, I'm going to do that next time I look for a dog. And then, so yeah, the, it, it's like a, we always interview the person at their home or their kennel. Or usually it's always both, of course. Um, so we record a podcast just at a kitchen table. And then we film the whole time. We're doing it like you're doing here now. We have cameras, two or three cameras and set you up. You film the 
that and the hunts and everything. Right. And, yeah. and in that person's case, yeah, we hunted together that, that prior season in North Dakota. So we use some of that footage when we're talking about how we met, you're actually watching our footage of our hunt in North Dakota. And you so learn like, like in, the, in that case, the one I watched, you learn why is hunting with this kind of dog? Mm-hmm. How is that different than other kinds of dogs? Meaning what are some of the expectations? If you think about a bird hunting dog, what are some of the expectations of this breed? What are some of the expectations of that breed? Yeah. And I honestly, I think where the point I want to make to people is like a bird dog is pretty much a bird dog. Just like a hound is pretty much a trailing hound. They have some that are a little better at big game, a little better at small game, but um, it's what the breeders put into it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the standards that they hold themselves to. And, and when I say standard, it's their breeding ethics. But every breed in this country now, and that's why I wanted to ask you, Angela, like if, if you had a dire wolf skull, mm-hmm. so all dogs have 42 teeth, would, would you see, yeah, 22 and 20, mm-hmm. and, or 22 and 20 up? Yeah. Um, would you see teeth misalignments in old skulls? Yes. Be- so that would indicate that would be a hell of a trivia question, man. Damn it. <laughs> hell of a trivia question. I told Ronnie that yesterday. I even wrote it down in my notes that I was going to use that in a, oh, in a, in a future well, trivia. Yeah. Nobody would have well, got it right. Where I blew it. That would have been a tiebreaker. Yeah, but, but you also said that <laughs> nobody would get it right, so it might not be a good too hard. But what I want to ask phenomenal tiebreaker material. What I want to ask Angela is like if you found. Uh, there was a dire wolf or a wolf or whatever with bad teeth. Mm-hmm. That's an indication of probably too much generational breeding. Possibly, yeah. Because if you had a dire wolf skull, how many of those exist out there? I don't even know. I'll tell you what, there's 175 <laughs> of them. Oh, there's. Okay. <laughs> so would they have any malclusions in their yes, mouth? They do. They would too. Yeah, they have malclusions. They're missing molars. They have all sorts of. Yeah. So all that is coming from that far back. I thought it was more of a last hundred years breeding oh, thing. Like but from see, messing with them too much. But this is exactly. what we're trying to sort out right now is that we think some of the things you're selecting for positively, like, you know, a water dog, ha- you want something with this type of coat. Right. You choose something that goes with this type of coat. But what trails along with it, the genes that partner with that, right. that you don't necessarily want, right. but you're not yeah. thinking about, come along for the ride. Like, are, bad, like bad hips, come along for the yeah. ride we on good water. Certain, right. <laughs> I think we got to have you on a, an episode right. someday of Behind the Dog. Well, anyway, th- thank you, Steve. It's, uh, it's, all you have to do is go to behinddogfilms.com. Well, how, so, so how many, when you launch, like how, how many, tell me what ones you're going to have done now. Well, we have two completed. One of them was not a breeder specific, but it was a training video that we were shooting. Yep. And we really got into the weeds about how any good bird dog, especially duck dog, obviously, has to be comfortable with the water. Yep. And water should just be another terrain to even your house dog, right? If you go cross- like you don't need to coax if, it at the shoreline right, to go out there. If you took your dog yeah. on a walk and it won't cross the creek with you, your kids aren't going to let you finish the walk because the dog's like, hey, but the water. how deep it is. Well, but some dogs <laughs> yeah. literally yeah. won't put a foot in water. So my anyway. daughter went down with her friend to swim at the creek yesterday, mm-hmm. and her friends got uh, her dog in a life jacket. <laughs> they don't need that. <laughs> they don't need that. <laughs> I said so, to her, I said, "You sure that dog needs a life jacket?" She's like, "Oh, she'll sink." Mingus might, I like, I Mingus dog might need one. That dog does not know how to swim. Does he swim like vertical? Yeah, that's not good. That's, <laughs> that, that's going to wear out quick. But to answer your question, we did one with a breeder in Michigan that breeds German short airs. Yeah. We have a training one about the water. We're editing one currently with the Weimariner breed. Got it. 
Uh, we're going to what we're going to do a wire-haired pointing griffin breeder, and then a lab breeder, and then a poodle pointer breeder. Got it. Poodle pointer is not think of poodle; it's P-U-D-E-L. It's a German breed. We're going to do that out in Boise. Um, so it's going to be probably one a month until you know we say, okay, Matt, quit your day job. Yep. And, and someday you might tackle the hounds and. Oh, absolutely. In yep. fact, if if Frank Giddings could be alive for long enough, I mean, he might. But you also have to have the person that's good on the microphone too. Which sure. Yeah. I always remember, like you had the first show, Wild Within, and you did that moose hunt, and I specifically asked you, "How come you didn't have the guy on camera with you very much?" And you said <laughs> he just he well. Come on, no. But I mean, all right, I guess. Well, I'm just saying you have to find the right, not just the right breeder. But the right conversationalist. Yeah, yeah. It, it you, they can be great at what they do, but they don't convey it. So you got. So I. That's my goal is to find the people that can convey their passion. Sure. And uh, and then your area of expertise is birds. You like stuff with feathers. Right. Everything. Yeah. Everything that flies. Yeah. Right. But that's why I want to. You know, like the hounds is going to be a tough one to do. You know, there there's houndsmen that don't follow any pedigree. Like they'll just. They'll breed another outside type of hound. There's what is there seven basic hounds, mm-hmm. five, five, yeah, seven, I think I seven. Think. So if if Brent wanted to take his walk, if he had, what is your breed? Tree and Walker. Tree and Walker, and he he did it to Yanni's Redbone or Blue Tick. Same and thing. People, <laughs> and that, that's a hound joke. And they bred them together. They'd probably get the same money for him. Tell me the joke. Oh. It's it's more of a sarcastic. Yeah, thing. yeah. I was just like, being sarcastic. They're all just like, yeah, they're just you mean like, like you you like a walkers? You're down on red bones and blue tips. Anything else? Okay, right, right. Not really, um, but yes, only right. among friends. Right. Um, so the houndsman, like for me, I'm going to have to find the houndsman who probably has a ten generation pedigree on his dogs, and really collectively and consciously, it's like no, 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 her. Her her grandma did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Literally stood in the kennel, barked, and made circles. And you'll see that follow in litters of dogs. All of a sudden, oh, is that right? Yeah. And Abrio's like, oh my god, that's just like her great aunt. Drove me crazy, and it it just pops up right. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to find a hound breeders that are like you guys, Yanni and Brent might have to help. Well, Yanni find got it. his dog from the dog. Well, pound. I'm not I'm not gonna go to the bar, but you're meeting so many you know houndsmen. Yeah. There's got to be that houndsman out there that like knows that breed, like the plots do, like 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 obviously I would go to Bob Plot mm-hmm. to learn about the plot hounds. Um, I didn't know the plots were still the plots. Yeah, the plots are the plots still. Yep, huh. from Johannes Plot. Yeah, a lot 17. of times so they become like the Dickinsons or something over <laughs> right, time. You know what right. I mean? Right. Really, still the plots. Yeah, patrilineal descent. Well, obviously there's some. Yeah. Some coyotes and some other stuff that <laughs> probably <laughs> happened. There's something in there's something in the wood pile, but yeah. for the most part, yes, yeah. Like Clay would know all about. Like Clay could sure. lock, lock me up with a bunch of good ones. Oh, yeah. So behindthedog.com, behindthedogfilms.com, behindthedogfilms.com. Yeah, I don't think we could get behind the dog for some reason. Yeah, when you, when yeah, you look for yeah. URLs. There was behind the chicken, behind the horse, behind the dog, behind the cat. Like, damn, we can't get URLs so, are getting hard to come by, man. I found That's that why out. places now just make up words. Tubi, Hulu, whatever. You just that make makes... up words because you can't check it because nothing checks out anymore. Right, right. So yeah, it's behindthedogfilms.com. Yeah. 
and uh and, and, uh, and upland institute still kicking ass or no oh yeah yeah now that that's a that's a complete four and a half hour training course yeah yeah um still available these oh yeah it'll be available till the internet blows up got it um or till we hit the little button in the background that says <laughs> disable no oh. you can download it yourself because oh. it's not downloadable otherwise you could just give it to your friend yeah yeah um this is this is a pay system right now we charge 499 to watch it and we're not sure if that's the model it's going to stay at yeah but literally just to earn the money to keep going to the next town we like we had to monetize it before yeah. it was big enough to monetize in another fashion so but it's it's honestly it's i don't know yana you you did you get to watch the rest of it with uh, yeah we did we did. If you like dogs, you're going to love it. There's a bunch of shots of dogs running around all over the place. And some interesting conversation about dogs. I think it's going to go well. Yeah. Behindthedogfilms.com. That's it. All right. And, and, then, and then tell folks how to, how to find yourself there real quick. Is there a preferred way? Texas A&M. Texas A&M. Yeah. Do you want people to write in with all kinds of things like, hey, I got this one dog. <laughs> oh, I got I a got, I get a lot of interesting emails. What's the thing you'd be most interested in hearing about? Um, if, a, if a museum had a dire wolf, uh, yeah. Well, or, I get a lot of people asking me about dire wolves or saying that they think they have dire wolf stuff at various museums. What's the most annoying email you get? This will help people not email you about um, it. <laughs> like ancient alien dog. You not you don't want those theories. I have, okay, enough. So I have enough of those. If, if, <laughs> I hope no one listening to this show emails in an alien dog theory, man. That's going to yeah. be embarrassing. Do you, do you like Steve, though, and explain what the theory would be that um, you don't actually... So I get a lot of people to. saying that dogs are actually aliens that have come from the dog star Cirrus. Okay. And that. That, um, that some genetic material has come out of the star... Um, arrived on Earth, and that dogs have appeared from there, um, and that I'm dumb for Amazing. thinking dogs that's were domesticated from now. wolves. Now that I heard it, that's what I think for sure, man. Um, <laughs> this is a thing. It's a thing. It must be like on the internet somewhere that the dog star Sirius is, you know, well, stuff is floating at down. A wolf and a Westie. And then that star, it just makes more Which sense makes that more the West sense. pretty clear from the star it's than true. from the wolf. It's true. <laughs> the, yeah, the yeah. writer Joan Didion um, speaks about this, and this is pre-internet. The writer Joan Didion in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, she talks about how some people cope with how much information. There's so much information. Mm. And you you face a fork in the road where you are interested in the subject, let's say like geopolitics, dogs, whatever, economy, economics, you go like, man, I could take the fork that would be to just to try to digest and mm -hmm. understand all of this information. Or I could take the fork where I know a little thing that no one else knows. Yeah. And that's really what's going on. And that's a seductive little fork. Dogs are aliens. That's where you get, that's where so many conspiracy <laughs> theories come from yeah. is you're just, it's, it's like there's insurmountable amounts of information mm -hmm. and you're like, yeah, that seems like a lot of work. Yeah. I'm buying this dog star deal. Yes. Because that is just easy. And then only I know it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of, I get a lot of emails <clears throat> that, um, from dog people who are convinced they have it all figured out. I like and, that you call them dog people. Dog people, you know, 
I know keep keep e- keep emailing me. Keep emailing me. I I have some good theories in my inbox. Okay, so, so she doesn't want to hear about dog stars, but she does want to hear about. You can send those to me. Get, I'm interested. Yeah, in that. Give, give, give me everything but dog stars. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm up for it. Oh, can you get me a dire wolf skull anyhow? Anyway, we could 3D print you one. Really? Yeah, you want a real? You want no, a real? I'll take one. that. That's the best I can do. Yeah, yeah. Right, let me know. Keep you posted. I could go in the backyard and dig up some skulls. Too. <laughs> I wouldn't know the difference. You wouldn't know like the difference. This, uh, we could just give you a wolf skull. No, 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 no. <laughs> I want a 3D. If I can get one, I'd like mm-hmm. to have a 3D of a of a dire wolf. Yeah. Oh, heads up! Speaking of that, we have uh, Crin. You haven't seen it yet. Hunter Spencer's working on a big octopus holding a gaff. Oh, this is gonna be great. <laughs> so it's an octopus. He's got a gaff, and he's got some shrimp tucked under his arm. We're gonna do a t-shirt run. <laughs> If you've listened to Puss and to Pot, Puss and which Pot. is also really good on search, <laughs> <Yep>. dominate search. <laughs> Hind titty, Puss and to Pot, Cattle Eat Your Nose, whatever this one's going to be. <laughs> Cattle Eat Your Nose. Cattle Eat Your Nose. Yeah, yeah, dominate on search, man. Um, all right, well, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is me. great, man. Yeah. Uh, Corinne, how long were you talking about getting a real dog expert on? Like years. Hmm. Like dog, about old dog years. <laughs> like a hundred years. Yanni already took his head. He's done. He just took his headset off. He's like, she doesn't know nothing about the blue chicks. <laughs> took his headset off. He's done talking about I'm not going to come up with any more funny than that. Come on. <laughs> it was a headset drop. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.